0: This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals.
1: Americans are asking,
0: who attacked our country? You have declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. Fell on a different world, and Iblis is thinking, you know, I should be getting this position, not Adam. And this guy is created from dirt. And how did the army feel about you being head of the Temple of Seth?
1: And the conspiracy theorists yeah. can say what they will. But... I want
0: you to give
2: me power over
0: Adam, and I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. The people have, have so much to gain and have such an imperial motive.
2: To give me the ability to whisper into the hearts of mankind.
1: And uh, who was the grotto leader? Don't remember his name. You don't remember the name of a person who involved you in murder? Are these people in the very high positions yet? Yes. Welcome back to Subliminal Jihad, episode 79. I'm your co host, Dimitri.
2: Uh, I'm Khalid. I guess we did another introduction to the episode, like, in the middle. Uh, But, uh, well, yeah, I guess we lost, uh, due to audacity sucking, we lost, like, two episodes. Like, or not two whole episodes, but half of, like, two episodes. Uh, Really, like, half of this one and a third of another. So. Yes. That's Um, why there's been, like, a huge increase in audio quality between the two parts of the episode, hopefully, because we did buy new microphones so hopefully you're noticing yes. that we didn't yeah. like just get replaced by like better sounding or like crisper sounding gin in the We you're not the, MIBs the that are replaced MIBs. the real Dimitri and call it it's like kind of feels like a little bit like pretentious to have this microphone uh but whatever you know anyway it'll sound better probably won't like end the complaints about the vocal fry or the filler words but you know, yeah. Dimitri was the assuring me be. that now that I like, I'm, we're listening to ourselves, like, as we speak, which is a little odd, but, you know, mm-hmm. we were saying that maybe that'll make me notice what I'm saying. Um, but, uh, <laughs> it's possible. I just did it, so,
1: uh, according Stabius. to the podcast, God Himself, Joe Rogan, yeah we, took the, yeah, we took
2: the production advice of Joe Rogan, yeah, so he
1: knows what's up. That's uh, the extent to which we've sold out, we've taken some mild podcasting
2: well you know he's got his Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours of podcasting so he would know right true Uh, and we're
1: on our way he's the expert we're on our way fast you
2: know, True, yeah, we life. are on our way fast in terms of sheer hour output. Uh, yes, it's If not, exactly. like, a lots of episodes. Uh, exactly.
1: Yeah. So before... How
2: many uh, epi- hours of Sable do you think that there are? Uh, well, this is episode 79. We're re-recording this hour. So. Yes, most but anyway, at least Let's get three back hours into long. the episodes. So and that, we're that at 80. So, but we're approaching probably 200. Longer by virtue of
1: getting to do it over again. Yeah, we're still talking over each other, but that's okay. I think we have about 250 hours, uh, somewhere around there.
2: I don't think that. I think it's a little optimistic. to think we're not going to talk over each other. Um, I feel like we've been talking each other over each other for ten years of knowing each other, like yeah. in real life. It has nothing to do with the audio equipment.
1: Yes, and it's not rude, uh, contrary to what I guess some people think. Uh, it's actually. Did someone rude. call it rude? I don't know. I think some people are just like turned off by it. They think it's like disrespectful to talk. We're
2: over people. friends. I know. Like, we interrupt each other. Like you interrupt me, I interrupt you. Yeah. Like. You know, whatever. No, I mean, no, if no. you ever feel like you haven't had a chance to speak your piece, by all means, like, do so. Uh, and I assume <laughs> the same goes, uh, sure. you know.
1: I think we always get our points in, but okay, yeah, so. I mean, we definitely
2: take whatever. Anyways, so. Rude. Uh, thank <laughs> you. Thank you for standing up uh, <laughs> for us, you know, uh, mutually. Yeah. Well. From the interruptions.
1: Uh huh. Well, yeah. Speaking of interruptions, whether it was some right kind now. of uh, Don't be rude demonic, anyway, yeah. <laughs> whether it was some kind of demonic gin, or it was some hacker hired by the Silk Toppers to torpedo the information we were trying to get out there, uh, it was
2: definitely a demonic gin. Considering the episodes that were interfered with, uh, I feel like it was probably some kind of Silk Topper gin. Collaboration, it
1: probably was, yeah. And, yeah. you know, I think that makes sense because of the, the subjects we're to continue covering in this epic volume by Gustavus Myers. And so I think, you know, in the first hour, if I recall correctly, we were mostly talking about the massive land frauds and thefts that basically rampaged throughout the 19th century and led to basically the consolidation of massive tracts of farming land, grazing land, uh, mineral-rich land, land with oil beneath it, copper, zinc, etc., in the hands of a relatively uh, small class of rapacious uh, robber barons, I guess you could say. But as we move into this volume... You know, Gustavus Myers very deftly, as we've mentioned before, he kind of dances between the dialectic of the, of the class and the individual, of the structural and the personal conspiratorial that we've talked about so much lately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, this is, uh, you know, so he, he does focus on a couple big figures. So the first one, really the centerpiece of this volume, is Railroad Titan, Cornelius Vanderbilt and you know he casts quite a long shadow over the you know the American superclass since kind of the uh, pretty much the Civil War era and Gustavus does not does not spare the rod basically in describing this man but also of course makes clear that he was simply at the end of the day an example of his class and simply the most rapacious the uh the despoiler yeah, makes, of the despoilers.
2: Yeah, he makes certain to, uh, like, cl- clarify throughout that he was, he takes he takes pains to repeatedly say, you know, that he shouldn't be singled out as, like, the worst of the capitalists because, and in fact, I feel like he's a little bit impatient with the uh, sort of uh, dressing down that Vanderbilt had received from, like, hypocritical, the hypocritical press or... Uh, from the, the popular discourse because he mm-hmm. you know, he was sort of held up as someone who was like, you know, out-of-control capitalism or like crony capitalism or, or yep. woke capitalism, you know, like uh-huh. all these uh, especially egregious forms of, of capitalism that are really bad, but uh, capitalism itself, like on the whole, is what should be indicted. Uh, and that's Gustavus Meyer's position for sure. Exactly. Uh, that, you know, you can't really uh, indict Vanderbilt too harshly because these are the lessons that he was taught by the system that he uh, came up in. Mm -hmm. Uh, In fact, Um, yeah, I think he even says almost exactly that at one point, that, mm -hmm. you know, we can't hold into account too harshly because this is the education that he received.
1: Yep, Uh, yep, exactly. So I think without further ado, we can start with chapter three, the beginnings of the Vanderbilt fortune. Just give us some grounding into who is this uh, individual, Cornelius Vanderbilt, where did he come from? Was he descended from a patroon, you know? I mean, was he a real, like, old-world New Netherlands silk topper or somebody kind of like Aster who didn't grow up with a lot, but through his sheer opacity and integration into the older landed gentry was able to, you know, amass an absolutely staggering fortune? Well, let's find out. So I'll just read a little bit from the first few pages of uh, of chapter 3 here. Okay, so the beginnings of the Vanderbilt fortune. The first of the overshadowing fortunes to develop from the ownership and manipulation of railroads was that of Cornelius Vanderbilt. The Habermeyers and other factory owners, whose descendants are now enrolled among the conspicuous multimillionaires, were still in the embryonic stages when Vanderbilt towered aloft in a class by himself with a fortune of $105 million. In these times of enormous individual accumulations and centralization of wealth, the personal possession of $105 does not excite a fraction of the astonishment or the astonished comment that it did at Cornelius Vanderbilt's death in 1877. Accustomed as the present generation is to the sight of billionaires or semi-billionaires, it cannot be expected to show any wonderment at fortunes of lesser proportions. Subheader, 90 millions in 15 years. Yet to the people of 30 years ago, around 100 million was something vast and unprecedented. In 1847, millionaires were so infrequent that the very word, as we have seen, was significantly italicized. But here was a man who, figuratively speaking, was a 100 millionaires rolled in one. Compared with his wealth, the great fortunes of 10 or 15 years before dwindled into bagatelles. During the Civil War, a fortune of 15 million had been looked upon as monumental. Even the huge Astor fortune, so long far outranking all competitors, lost its exceptional distinction and ceased being the sole unrivaled standard of immense wealth. Nearly a century of fraud was behind the Astor fortune. The greater part of Cornelius Vanderbilt's wealth was massed together in his last 15 years. This was the amazing unparalleled feature to his generation. Within 15 brief years, he had possessed himself of more than $90 million. His wealth came rushing in at the rate of $6 million a year. Such an accomplishment may not impress the people of these years, familiar as they are with the ease with which John D. Rockefeller and other multi-millionaires have long swept in almost fabulous annual revenues. With his yearly income of fully $80 million or $85 million, Rockefeller can look back and smile with superior disdain at the commotion raised by the contemplation of Cornelius Vanderbilt's $6 million. Each period to itself, however... Cornelius Vanderbilt was the golden luminary of his time, a magnate of such combined far reaching wealth and power as the United States has ever known. Indeed, one overruns the line of tautology in distinguishing between wealth and power. The two were then identical, not less than now. Wealth was the real power. None knew or boasted of this more than old Vanderbilt when, with advancing age, he became more arrogant and choleric, and less and less inclined to smooth down the storms he provoked by his contemptuous flings at the great pliable public. When threatened by competitors, or occasionally by public officials, with the invocation of the law, he habitually sneered at them and vaunted his defiance. In terse sentences, interspersed with profanity, he, <laughs> he proclaimed the fact that money was law, that it could either buy laws or immunity from the law. Since wealth meant power, both economic and political, it is not difficult to estimate Vanderbilt's supreme place in his day. Far below him in point of possession stretched the 50 million individuals who made up the nation's population. Nearly 10 million were wage laborers, and of the 10 million, fully 500,000 were child laborers. The very best paid of skilled workers received in the highest market not more than $1,000.40 a year. The usual weekly pay ran from $12 to $20 a week. The average pay pay of unskilled laborers was $350 a year. More than 7.5 million persons plowed and hoed and harvested the farms of the country. Comparatively, few of them could claim a decent living, and a large proportion were in debt. The incomes of the middle class, including individual employers, business and professional men, tradesmen, and small middlemen, ranged from $1,000 to $10,000 a year. How immeasurably puny they all seemed besides Vanderbilt. He beheld a multitude of many millions struggling fiercely for the dollar that meant livelihood or fortune, those bits of metal or paper which commanded the necessities, comforts, and luxuries of life, the antidote of grim poverty, and the guarantees of good living, which dictated the services, honorable or often dishonorable, of men, women, and children, which bought brains not less than souls, and which put their sordid seal on even the most sacred qualities. Now by these tokens he had securely 105 million of these bits of metal or wealth in some form equivalent to them millions of people had none of these dollars the hundreds of thousands had a few the thousands had hundreds of thousands the few had millions he had more than any even with all his wealth great as it was in his day he would scarcely be worth remembrance were it not that he was a founder of a dynasty of wealth therein lies the present importance of his career from 105 million bequeathed at his death, the Vanderbilt fortune has grown until it now reaches fully 700 million. This is like in 1910.
2: Yeah, very Dr. Evil. Uh,
1: right? Uh, this yeah. is an approximate estimate. The actual amount may be more or less. In 1889, Shearman placed the wealth of Cornelius and William K. K. Vanderbilt, grandsons of the first Cornelius, at 100 million each and that of Frederick W. Vanderbilt, a brother of those two men, at 20 million. Adding the fortunes of the various other members of the Vanderbilt family, the Vanderbilts then possessed about 300 million. Since that time, the population and resources of the United States have vastly increased wealth in the hold of a few has become more intensely centralized great fortunes have gone far beyond their already extraordinary boundaries of 20 years ago the possessions of the vanderbilts have expanded and swollen in value everywhere although recently the standard oil oligarchy has been encroaching upon their possessions very probable it is that the combined vanderbilt fortune reaches fully 700 million actually and potentially but the incidental mention of such a mass of money conveys no adequate conception of the power of this family nominally it is composed of private citizens with theoretically the same rights and limitations of citizenship held by any other citizen and no more but this is a fanciful picture in reality the vanderbilt family is one of the dynasties of inordinately rich families ruling the united states industrially and politically singly it has mastery over many of the railroad and public utility systems and industrial corporations of the united states in combination with other powerful men or families of wealth it shares the dictatorship of many more corporations under the Vanderbilt's direct domination are 21,000 miles of railroad lines, the ownership of which is embodied in $600 million in stocks and $700 million in bonds. One member alone, William K. Vanderbilt, is a director of 73 transportation and industrial combinations or corporations. And then he goes on to talk about, you know, the, the, the instrument, uh, the, I don't know, alchemical instrument that makes this all possible, stocks and bonds. So he says bonds that yeah. hold present and posterity. And This is where he gets a l- almost a little bit like mystical with it, which I love. We love that by Gustavus. Mm-hmm. He says, Behold, in imagination at least, this mass of stocks and bonds. Yeah. Heaps I like prose. Yeah, it's really yeah, great. this
2: is my favorite prose. I yeah, uh, it's good that we we're going back over this because yeah, this is one of my this is definitely my favorite prose so far in this book. Yeah. This really
1: shows you now. like the <laughs> shatonic, uh magic how yeah. influence of capital and all of its horror. Yeah. So behold in imagination at least this mass of stocks and bonds heaps of paper they seem dead inorganic things a second's blaze will consume any of them a few strokes of the fingers tear it into shapeless ribbons yet under the institution of law as it exists these pieces of paper are endowed with a terrible power of life and death that even enthroned kings do not possess Those dainty prints with their scrolls and numerals and inscriptions are binding titles to the absolute ownership of a large part of the resources created by the labors of entire peoples. Kingly power is at best shadowy, indefinite, depending mostly upon traditional custom and audacious assumption backed by armed force. If it fall back upon a certain alleged divine right, it cannot produce documents documents to prove its authority. The industrial monarchs of the United States are fortified with both power and proofs of possession. Those bonds and stocks are the tangible titles to tangible property. Whoso holds them is vested with the ownership of the necessities of tens of millions of subjected people. Great stretches of railroad traverse the country. Here are coal mines to whose products some 90 million people look for warmth. Yonder are factories. There in the cities are streetcar lines and electric light and power supply and gas plants. On every hand are lands and forests and waterways, all owned, you find, by this or that dominant man or family. The mind wanders back in amazement to the times when, if a king conquered territory, he had to erect a fortress or castle and station a garrison to hold it. They that then disputed the king's title could challenge, if they chose, at peril of death, the provisions of that title, which same provisions were swords and spears, arrows and muskets, but nowhere throughout the large extent of the Vanderbilt's possessions or those of the other ruling families are found warlike garrisons as evidence of ownership. Those uncouth barbarian methods are grossly antiquated. The part once played by armed battalions is now performed by bits of paper. A wondrously convenient change has it been. The owners of the resources of nations can disport themselves thousands of miles away from the scene of their ownership. They need never bestir themselves to provide measures for the retention of their property. Government, with its array of officials, prisons, armies, and navies, undertakes all of this protection for them. So long as they hold these bits of paper in their name, government recognizes them as the incontestable owners and safeguards their property accordingly. The very government established on the taxation of the workers is used to enforce the means by which the workers are held in subjection. I mean, ain't nothing new obviously was this,
2: uh, where was it that he used the word vaniloquent? Uh, so a word that I genuinely had not heard before very weird uh very very rare that is to encounter a word that I've literally never that, seen once yes that uh, comes later but,
1: in the Gould section actually on 3-4-5. yeah
2: I remember that yeah oh, okay that's in the Gould section what uh, right. well,
1: Gould is really um, like the the pra- like definitely a great example of the praxis of everything that Myers just described in terms of like literally if you steal like a duff like a big bag full of stocks, like you become the owner, of it, mm-hmm. which kind yeah. of is uh, what ended up happening. But uh, but anyways, yeah, yeah. so Yeah, I mean, the
2: things the, that stick out to me, like from my memory of discussing Vanderbilt were two things. One, like the sort of innovation of the usurious system of stocks and bonds and like the way that they just made money from money through sheer gambling and mm-hmm. maluse of uh, like, yeah, stocks and bonds. And the other one was like his conduct during the Civil War, where he like sort of emerged as like a noted patriot or or whatever. But he actually was like uh, you know imperiling uh, Union troops by like uh, selling them like marked up like rotting ships. Yes. Uh, because before he mm-hmm. got into the railroads where he made his real fortune, he was in shipping. Yes, he uh, was. He
1: was. Yeah. And um, um. And so I think. Yeah, Myers gives a little background on his actual kind of, you know, his background. And he was from Staten Island. And he didn't grow up rich, but he did grow up the son of a kind of um like a, a, a fairy. His dad basically ran a fairy business. Let me see right here. Um, 106, that's where his uh, biography begins. Um, so Myers writes, uh, the founders start. Vanderbilt was a rugged, headstrong, untamable, illiterate youth. At 12 years of age, he could scarcely write his own name, but he knew the ways of the water. When still a youth, he commenced ferrying passengers and freight between Staten Island and New York City. For books, he cared nothing. The refinements of life, he scorned. His one passion was money. He was grasping and enterprising, coarse and domineering. Of the real details of his early life, little is known except what has been written by laudatory writers. We are informed that as he gradually made and saved money, he built his own schooners and went in for the coasting trade. The invention and success of the steamboat, it is further related, convinced him that the day of the sailing vessel would soon be over. He therefore sold his interest in his schooners and was engaged as captain of a steamboat plying between New York and points on the New Jersey coast. His wife, at the same time, enlarged the family revenues by running a wayside tavern at New Brunswick, New Jersey, whither Vanderbilt had moved. In ni- 1829, when his resources uh, reached $30,000, he quit as an employee and began building his own steamboats. Little by little, he drove many of his competitors out of business. This he was able to do by his harsh, unscrupulous, and strategic measures. He was severe with the men who worked for him, compelling them to work long hours for little pay. He showed a singular ability in undermining competitors. They could not pay low wages, but what he could pay lower. As rapidly as they set about reducing passenger and freight rates, he would anticipate them. His policy at this time was to bankrupt competitors and then having obtained a monopoly to charge exorbitant rates. The public, which welcomed him as a benefactor in declaring cheaper rates and which flocked to patronize his line, had to pay dearly for their premature and short-sighted joy. For the first five years, his profits, according to Crawford, reached 30000 a year, doubling in successive years. By the time he was 40 years old, he ran steamboats to many cities on the coast and had amassed a fortune of half a million dollars. So that's the first mention of many, basically, of his uh, hard-nosed, uh, aggressive business tactics. So he goes on. I guess one of the big themes with Vanderbilt is bribery and commercial blackmail. So Myers writes that... One of Vanderbilt's most effective means for harassing and driving out competition was in bribing the New York Common Council to give him and refuse them dock privileges. As the city on the docks, the Common Council had the exclusive right of determining to whom they should be leased. Not a year passed, but what the ship, ferry, and steamboat owners, the great landlords, and other capitalists bribed the aldermen to lease or give them valuable city property. Many scandals resulted, culminating in the great scandal of 1853 when the grand jury uh, handed up a presentment showing in detail how certain aldermen had received bribes for disposal of the city's water rights peer privileges, and other property, and how enormous sums had been expended in bribes to get railroad grants for the city. Vanderbilt was not openly implicated in these frauds, no more than were the Astors, the Rhinelanders, the Golays, and other very rich men who prudently kept in the background and who managed to loot the city by operating through go-betweens. Vanderbilt's eulogists take great pains to elaborate upon his tremendous energy, sagacity, and constructive enterprise as though these were the exclusive qualities by which he got his fortune. Such a glittering picture, common in all the usual biographies of rich men, discredits itself and is overthrown by the actual facts Times in which Vanderbilt lived and thrived were not calculated to inspire the masses of people with respect for the traders' methods, although none could deny that the outcropping capitalists of the period showed a fierce vigor in overcoming obstacles of man and nature and in extending their conquests toward the outpost of the habitable globe. He started uh, bribing everybody, and uh, Gustavus does note, uh, yeah, if, if indomitable enterprises who assured permanency of wealth... Then many of Vanderbilt's competitors would have become and remained multimillionaires. Vanderbilt by no means possessed a monopoly of acquisitive enterprise. On every hand and in every line were men fully as active and unprincipled as he. Nearly all of these men, the scores of competitors in his own sphere, dominant capitalists in their day, have become well nigh lost in the records of time. Their descendants are in the slough of poverty, genteel or otherwise. Those times were marked by the intensest commercial competition. Business was a labyrinth of sharp tricks and low cunning. The man who managed to protect his head far above the rest not only had to practice the methods of his competitors, but to overreach and outdo them. It was in this regard that Vanderbilt showed superior ability. In the exploitation of the workers, forcing them to work for low wages and compelling them to pay high prices for all necessities, Vanderbilt was no different from all contemporaneous capitalists. Capitalism subsisted by this process. Almost all conventional writers, it is true, set forth that it was the accepted process of the day, implying that it was a condition acquiesced in by the employer and worker. This is one of the lies disseminated for the purpose of proving that the great fortunes were made by legitimate methods. Far from being accepted by the workers, it was denounced and was openly fought by them at every auspicious opportunity. So eventually, Vanderbilt became one of the largest ship and steamboat builders in the United States and one of the most formidable employers of labor. At one time, he had a thousand vessels afloat. Thousands of shipwrights, mechanics, and other workers toiled for him 14 and 16 hours a day at fifty a day for many years. The actual purchasing power of this wage kept declining as the cost of rent and other necessities of life advanced. This was notably so after the great gold discoveries in California, when prices of all commodities rose abnormally and the workers in every trade were forced to strike for higher wages in order to live. Most of these strikes were successful, but the results as far as wages went were barren. The advance wrung from employers, but was by no means equal to the increased cost of living. So, yeah, you know, he he built himself up. And, you know, the other aspect of that was blackmail. So Myers writes, "...far from being the, quote, constructive genius that he is represented in every extant biographical work and note, Vanderbilt was the foremost mercantile pirate and commercial blackmailer of his day. Harsh as these terms may seem, they are more than justified by the facts." His eulogists, in line with those of other rich men, weave a beautiful picture for the edification of posterity of a broad, noble-minded man whose honesty was his sterling virtue and whose splendid ability in opening up and extending the country's resources was rewarded with a great fortune and the thanks of his generation. This is utterly false. He who has the slightest knowledge of the low practices and degraded morals of the trading class and of the qualities which ensured success might at once suspect the spuriousness of this extravagant presentation, even if the vital facts were unavailable. But there is no such difficulty. Obviously, for every one fraudulent commercial or political transaction that comes to the public notice, hundreds and thousands of such transactions are kept in concealment. Enough facts, however, remain in official records to show the particular methods Vanderbilt used in getting together his millions. Yet no one hitherto seems to have taken the trouble to disinter them. Even serious writers, who cannot be accused of wealth worship or deliberate misstatement, have all, without exception, borrowed their narratives of Vanderbilt's career from the fiction of his literary newspaper and oratorical incense burners. And so it is that everywhere the conviction prevails that whatever fraudulent methods Vanderbilt employed in his later career, he was essentially an honest straight forward man who was compelled by the promptings of sheer self-preservation to fight back at unscrupulous competitors or antagonists, and who innately was opposed to underhand work or fraud in any form. Vanderbilt is in every case portrayed as an eminently high-minded man who never stooped to dissimulation, deceit, or treachery, and whose first millions, at any rate, were made in legitimate ways of trade, as they were then Understood. Next subheader: extortion and theft. comment.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I love how he like goes in on him as yeah. We another thing we have to remember to read before the end that we just kind of worked in there. Maybe we would have more time to explore it uh, if we uh, cut down on on some of the. The stuff that was in this previously, but uh, yeah, I love how he has like no reverence for Vanderbilt, but also there's a great part about Theodore Roosevelt in this volume. Oh, yeah, uh, that just like really goes in on him, but yeah, he calls him like an illiterate and like someone who just like spewed like profanity and jargon, you know, it had like no sophistication. This is actually a really good part that I don't know. I think that uh, this comes just on the heels of the part about the uh, you know, the power of, of stocks and bonds, you know, the the how stocks and bonds are imbued with the, the power of life and death uh, mm-hmm. in you know sort of uh, sweeping medieval-type allegory. You know He uh, is talking about the railroads in general, and he says, uh, Visualizing this power, one begins to get a visit, vivid perception of the comprehensive sway of the Vanderbilt and of other railroad magnates. They levy tribute without restraint, a tribute so vast that the exactions of classic conquerors become dwarfed beside it. If this levying entailed only the seizing of money, that cold, unbreathing, lifeless substance, then human emotion might not start in horror at the consequences. But beneath it all are the tugging and tearing of human muscles and minds, the toil and sweat of an unnumbered multitude, the rending of homes, the infliction of sorrow, suffering, and death. Yeah, you really can see the sort of, uh, it's, there's definitely a Marxist influence here. You know, he definitely he shouts out socialism and socialists like an his footnotes, so you can really see like the uh, sort of a, a labor theory of, of value kind of okay. underrunning this, or the idea of a capital is imbued with life. But he says, uh, the magnets, as we have said, hold the power of decreeing life and death, and time never was since the railroads were first built when this power was not extra- arbitrarily exercised. Millions have gone hungry or lived on an attenuated diet while elsewhere harvests are rotted in the ground. Between their needs and nature's fertility lay the railroads... Organized and maintained for profit, and for profit alone, the railroads carry produce and products at their fixed rates and not a whit less. If these rates are not paid, the transportation is refused. And as in these times, transportation is necessary in the world's intercourse, the men who control it have the power to stand as an inflexible barrier between individuals, groups of individuals, nations, and international peoples. The very agencies which should, under a rational form of civilization, be devoted to promoting the interests of mankind are used as their capricious self-interests incline them by the few who have been allowed to obtain control of them. What if helpless people are swept off by starvation or by diseases superinduced by lack of proper food? What if in the great cities an increasing sacrifice of innocence goes on because their parents cannot afford the price of good milk, a price determined to a large extent by railroad tariff? All the slaughter and more makes no impress upon the unimpressionable surfaces of these stocks and bonds and leaves no record save in the hospitals and graveyards. The railroad magnets have other powers. Government itself has no power to blot a town out of existence. It cannot strew desolation will, at will, but the railroad owners can do it and do not hesitate if sufficient profits be involved. One man sitting in a palace in New York can give an order declaring a secret discriminative tariff against the products of a place... Whereupon its industry is no longer uh, able to compete with formidable competitors enjoying better rates close down, the life of the place flickers and sometimes goes out These are but a very few of the immensity of extravagant powers conferred by the ownership of these railroad bonds and stocks Bonds they assuredly are, incomparably more so than the clumsy yokes of olden days Society has improved its outward forms in these passing centuries Clanking chains are no longer necessary to keep slaves in subjection far more effective than change and balls and iron collars are the ownership of the means whereby men must live. Whoever controls them in large degree is a potentiate, by whatever name he be called, and those who depend upon the owner of them for their sustenance are slaves by whatever flattering name they choose to go. Now, you could take issue with that in some respects, but I think it's very compelling the way that he talks about the sort of flow of life being mm-hmm. interrupted by these machines uh, and the implementation of their control by the what he calls potentiates, you know, mm-hmm. uh, pow- uh, powers, basically, or agents of power. Um, yes. And, you know, their ability to just yeah, interfere in uh, people's livelihood and to control really... Basically, this whole system of stocks and bonds and papers and symbology is obscuring a way of exercising control, like a grotesque and and sinister control over life itself. Uh, that's suffocating and uh, yes. you know just uh, this is truly like
1: the the dictatorship of like the cl- the capitalist overclass basically like fully coming into fruition, uh, to a degree, not that it wasn't already rigged from the very beginning, but yeah, I mean, where basically the, the, they have the, they do kind of have, in some cases they, they have privileges that like exceed patroonship, you know, like before the American revolution oh, yeah. in the sense that you could buy you know hundreds of thousands of acres of land like Bill Gates is doing today and kick anybody off of it and the supreme court would basically Yes,
2: you know, absolutely. Like reify and that as legal. Yeah, he does he does talk about yeah, that did occur to me. I think uh I'm not sure if that is mentioned in what uh we have preserved of our earlier recording but yeah, I think this, we did
1: mention Bill Gates yeah, buying the land. Uh, up. Yeah.
2: Yeah, right. Uh and yes, yeah, definitely that did occur to me and he, he like yeah and it really talks about how, you know, of course there's like uh, vain or uh, perfunctory separations of power and like uh, antitrust maneuvers happening at this time. You know, uh, Theodore Roosevelt being an exponent of that. But the ultimately, the government really is subservient and just does whatever these railroads want, whatever these railroad magnates and, and these capitalists desire. The government really is their implement. Yeah, uh, for it accomplishing is. it. What you were saying before really reminded me of this portion that I feel like we shouldn't gloss over because it's kind of about the uh, dissonance between the portrayal of these people and their actual like moral character, which mm-hmm. I found to be very interesting. And I do remember that we mentioned it uh, previously. You know, he goes on and says the Vanderbilts are potentiates. Their power is bounded by no law. They are among the handful of fellow potentiates who say what law shall be and how it shall be enforced. No stern, masterful men and women are they, as some future moonstruck novelist or historian bent upon creating legendary lore may portray them. Voluptuaries are most of them, sunk in a surfeit of gorgeous living and riotous pleasure. Weak, without distinction of mind or heart, they have the money to hire brains to plan, plot, scheme, advocate, supervise, and work for them. Suddenly deprived of their stocks and bonds, they would find themselves adrift in the sheerest helplessness. With these stocks and bonds, they are the direct absolute masters of an army of employees. On the New York Central Railroad alone, the Vanderbilt payroll embraces 50,000 workers. This is but one of their railroad systems, as many more, or nearly as many, men work directly for them on their other railroad lines." You know, he just talked about how the interests and decisions of this family are supreme. He says, accepting the average of five to a family, here are 500,000 souls whose livelihood is dependent upon largely the will of the Vanderbilt family. To that will, there is no check. Today, it may be expansively benevolent. Tomorrow, after a fit of indigestion or a night of demoralizing revelry, it may flit to an extreme of parsimonious retaliation. As the will fluctuates, so must be the fate of the hundred thousand workers." Uh, mm-hmm. So it's interesting that, you know, this sort of allusion to their sort of uh, dissolute lifestyle, you know, he really emphasizes how they're involved in like these riotous parties and, you know, they don't yeah. have any uh, healthful character. You know, I no, just wonder no. like what, you
1: know, uh, no. what were they doing at those In sharp here? contradiction to the, yeah. uh, the Protestant mythos of the hardest working person is ipso facto, the most holy person, probably my least favorite thing about Protestant Christianity, (laughs) yeah, basically the most pernicious idea that was, uh, that was, you know, uh, uh, cooked up in that cauldron of Calvinism. And yeah, I think most of these people actually were not, you know, model citizens by any means. And, you know, it's interesting to think about even today, you know, I'm sure that the assorted Vanderbilt heirs still control a lot of wealth and, you know, their money is in all kinds of trusts and things like that. But we still have, you know, a Vanderbilt yelling at us on the nightly news telling us, you know, that... Uh, we can't go to the grocery store unless we get a vaccine pass (laughs) and hectoring us and trying to take their guns away and all that shit. the Uh, whole Weber
2: thing of the Protestant work ethic. I wonder, like, you know, I feel like we're all told that and that's, like, supposed to be, like, this great intellectual insight, like, that there's this sort of root in Calvinism, which perhaps, you know, we, in our later episode, this is weird for the first time, I'm alluding to an episode that is in the future, uh, what will be said in it, but, uh Yeah, like uh, in our later episode, we kind of mentioned the sort of Anglo-Dutch roots of some of the ruling class, and that's something that's a factor in uh, the earlier uh, volume of the History of the Great American Fortunes, and obviously there's a huge Calvinist influence on, you know, uh, Dutch Protestantism. Uh, You know, they very much cleave to a lot of those uh, early settlers or patroons would have been influenced by, like, you know, the Calvinist doctrines of absolute depravity or things like that. But I you know, I wonder how much of that I mean, maybe it does have some deep roots there, but I wonder like whether Protestantism itself, you know, not to uh like go too easy on them, but I wonder like how much of that is like a scapegoat for like whatever the, you know, depraved uh inclinations of like these particular people like are. You know, sure. like uh yeah. He does mention, you know, there is one guy later on, uh Drew, right? Am I thinking of the right person? Uh like uh his his right-hand man. Oh, his in, lawyer. Yeah, y- yeah. Yeah, I, who I would did, be uh, doing all the batting for him on the DePue. stock
1: market. yeah, Chauncey Depew. Is
2: that right? Um, yeah, I uh, think
1: it is. Yeah, Vanderbilt's reptoid lawyer is what I wrote down, and he became a senator from New York in the early. Uh, years well,
2: standards. was he the same one? I feel like. Was oh no! The there was Drew, Drew. Might him. have been.
1: I think Drew was Gould's person, or I forget. we'll, we'll have to go deeper. I forget. Yeah, we'll Drew find was the guy who was. Uh, he was. Uh, he was either despoiled. I think he was despoiled by Gould. I, I believe. Uh, and they dumped him. Remember after their whole scandal. Yeah,
2: they're right. Gould and uh, Vanderbilt. Gould betrayed Vanderbilt. withdrew, and yeah, yeah and then he, after he was betrayed, he like crept under his covers and made all these sort of religious, um, you know, appeals for for clemency and kind of like just collapsed into like a religious torpor uh, yeah. because he still like was you know uh, sort of had a, a streak of orthodoxy. Yeah. him, uh, despite and, and, I mean, just being, the, you know,
1: a uh, very like, you know, uh, reprobate person. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I think the other thing to keep in mind, and I think it's something we're still in the process of getting to the bottom of, is the kind of cultural shift that went on in, particularly in like the Ivy League colleges and places like Yale and Harvard, um, but particularly focusing on Yale, where that was a university that basically existed to train Like preachers, reverends, right? Like clergy, it was a place. Yeah, that was a
2: while before. At this point, though, well, it was.
1: But you know, as we, I think, as we've talked about elsewhere, uh, certain families that were sending their children to go to Yale to become uh, clergy were still sending their children. The descendants of those people were sending their children to go to Yale in the 1800s and the 1900s to become businessmen. And so Mm -hmm. you have to, I'm sure there was always some kind of overlap between those two things, but it really seemed like the ascendancy, especially of things like Skull and Bones, which is like, how do you square Skull and Bones with, you know, a kind of university that's trained, designed to build a good Christian clergyman? You know, and then you have this like German death cult society where you have to like lie in a coffin full of shit, like cradling Geronimo's skull while everyone like pees on you and you have to tell them all your secrets. Like, how did that evolve, right? Because it seems like there's... A a spiritual shift, if you will, and and a full pivot towards business is almost like business is the religion in in a kind of way. I don't I don't want to necessarily speak like too literally, but it feels that way, right? That business became the the true religion. I guess that
2: yeah. Think about the nineteenth century, like the uh, I mean, if you think about the skull and bones, like I've seen Skull and Bones Hall. You know, it's called the Tomb. And at Harvard, they have a similar thing, like a mm-hmm. weird, like, kind of uh, tomb for their secret society uh, that, ex- that exists there. I forget exactly what. Uh, what's the Harvard one called? Is it uh, y- the. Uh, I, always not as notorious,
1: about, I always forget but, about the Harvard ones, uh, what they're called. They don't get talked about as much.
2: No, yeah, they definitely don't. Uh, but their building is uh, also very odd looking. But I think that those were, at least in the case of the Skull and Bones Hall. I think that that was roughly contemporary, or at least there were... Yeah, I think that they actually designed it for the Skull and Bones, right? Like, it was constructed for them, like, in that, I you know, 19th so. century Gothic style, yeah. or at least around that time. Yeah, most of the yeah.
1: oldest secret societies, I think Book and Snake is yeah, the, the same way, Scabbard, li- right, a scabbard li- Yeah, um, the and otherwise known as Scrolling Key, that was the other one.
2: Mm-hmm. The... It was built in three phases. The first wing was built in 1856, the second wing in 1903, and Davis-designed neo-Gothic towers were added to the rear guard in 1912. Uh, the front and side facades and the other Portland brownstone in a doric style. That's, you know, uh, just from Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. But you can see in the architecture, like, the you know, the sort of neoclassical influences, like, of everything that was in the air at the time, like, spiritualism, kind of, I mean... You know, after the you know, I guess uh, the skull and bones itself predates uh, the Second World War, but especially after the Second, uh, sorry, the Second World War predates uh, the Civil War. Mm-hmm. But after the Civil War, especially, you know, when there's this mass death, people obviously experience a little bit of disillusionment, and you know, maybe in there's an element of that, like just in the general milieu of the early nineteenth century as well, and uh, the lead up to. The Civil War. I think that there definitely was like an aspect of, and certainly the, the sort of puritanical religion or the you know uh, the religious seriousness that prevailed at that time, uh, in the earlier centuries uh, certainly did start to wane. The ninth century was a very different time in terms of that orientation. I think in the United States. Um, yeah,
1: yeah. I think that's where you saw a lot of the these high the Protestants. Classes. Yeah. You know, like mm-hmm. the the Episcopalians and the Presbyterians, probably most notably, kind of it became more of like a social thing, but that, that's why Roger Ebert could say in the 80s, like, Protestantism for people who sort of want a religion. You know, like, that, that's a common, uh, I think, attack, or maybe less so today. But that's a common attack probably in, like, the, the mid to late 20th century when the term wasp was coined by an alum of St. Anthony Hall. And the idea that these kind of, like, fuddy-duddy high Episcopalians, like, really weren't, like, religious at all, but they all, it was almost like a tradition you had to keep up of, yeah, everyone goes to, like, the First Presbyterian Church and you belong to this thing, but really, I mean, compared to maybe, like, other religions that were around in America at that time, like, either more sort of evangelical type ones or, like, Catholics, they were kind of just going through the motions of their religiosity, but it really was kind of, you know, it's like in There Will Be Blood when they ask Daniel Plainview if he's a religious man and he's like, uh, I'm a uh, celebrator of many faiths. Like, you know, like, it's, like, obviously, he didn't know. He's well, fucking Well, yeah, not I mean, I
2: think another, like, concern that's sort of adjacent to this, like, outside of, like, the specifics of, like, the religious belief or the sort of doctrine that's being cleaved to or followed, something that I do recall us speaking about when we uh, did this episode before, whether or not it's the part that we've uh, managed to hold on to or not, if it's in that part. We did talk a little bit about, like, whether these people... Uh, feel bad, you know, whether they really do have a moral sensibility and, like, whether they know that what they're doing is wrong because they've done truly egregious things, you know? Like, uh, Mm -hmm. I think we'll talk in a moment about Vanderbilt's uh, Civil War activities and then we'll probably talk about, like, Gould's gold conspiracy and all these things. Like, Mm -hmm. do they have, like, a, a sense that what they're doing is wrong? I think that maybe... I think maybe it varies, but I think that it, it is telling, I think, that in the case of... I should really look up his name to see like whether it was, in fact, Drew, but I'm pretty sure that it was. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Gould's associate in betraying Vanderbilt, the fact that he would, you know, then, after being betrayed, just sort of collapse into, uh, you know, an upswell of religious feeling that I think is, in a way, telling, like, that he might have had some sort of sensibility that what he was involved in outside of, like, you know, I think that maybe uh, there's sort of a tendency to read it like, oh, you know, he was washed up, and now he was kind of almost superstitiously or selfishly appealing to get out of the situation that he was in. But maybe it was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back in a way Mm -hmm. of all the activities that he was involved in, like all of the sort of just manipulating money, like, causing railroads to crash, like yeah. purposefully, like, uh, you know, letting them just deteriorate and become, like, incredibly accident-prone. Uh, yeah, like, literally, not not crash on the stock
1: market, though he did would do that, too. Right, but like, yeah, literally crash, sorry, like- sorry, <laughs> yeah,
2: that could be confusing. No, yeah, yeah, exactly, not cause, like, the stock market or the sort of, yeah, the railroad uh, company to crash uh, or this profile in the stock market to plummet although that would be a result, which then could be exploited. But yeah, literally, like, the railroads would have to materially physically crash and people would have to die (laughs) because, like, these people, even though they were all about gaining control of the railroad industry, they didn't care at all about the—or know anything about the maintenance of railroads or how to maintain them. (laughs) So they just completely let them fall apart a lot of the time, and they, in some cases, did that deliberately and were, in fact, encouraged by uh, the market to do it (laughs) because— They, it's, you know, oh. it was a strategy for them. Yeah, yeah it's such a uh,
1: good counterpoint to any kind of, like, lib or conservative or bourgeois discourse about how capital, like, basically the kind of Chicago school era of, like, capitalism, like, provides the most efficient services through competition. And it's, like, actually this incentive structure is, like, deeply satanic and fucked up and actually is not rational on top of that. No, like, it is really not.
2: Like, when we, like, uh, yeah, we should... We should we, talk about like you know the the Civil War thing, and then we should move to like the gold conspiracy and something yeah, like, yeah, like yeah. nitty gritty of the railroad stuff because you really see how this is like not in any way like an outgrowth of any like system that follows any kind of actual like logic at all. Yeah. like it it's seems all like deliberately like. A, a grift. like Basically. You know, like the cruelty is the point like you know which may have been insightful at one point but is now like deteriorated into like just an annoying live mantra like it yeah. almost does feel that that is the case in the way that a lot of these things are worked out from at mm-hmm. least my harvesting
1: of that. souls yeah the gold money.
2: room and everything is just outrageous yeah yes um, i mean
1: this is what happens when like you don't have any i don't know like broader moral strictures against uh like this type of behavior in terms of economics. Yeah, activity. or that like, like the
2: ca- the caprice and the whims as he wrote, like they are able to determine what the law is and there is no like higher uh principle of moral law that they are accountable to at all. Yes. Uh they did, yeah. like their whims aside the law. I think we mentioned uh in the uh probably the lost uh part of this episode, I think, uh presume we lost everything that we said about Vanderbilt then. Uh, I think we we mentioned how you know it's kind of uh, like a naive sort of refrain from some quarters, you know, like that we need to raise taxes, you know, on the on the most wealthy, but mm-hmm. like they determine what is taxed, like yes. they determine the taxes on their commodities and what the taxes on them are. So like when and you also, hear someone yes. like Warren Buffett being like, I would welcome these taxes, well, that's never gonna happen. It's a complete non-starter because it's not like there is actually like a separate or you know, autonomous entity that's gonna be able to impose these taxes. Like they are the ones who determine what the tax structure and the taxes are.
1: Absolutely. And we see that again and again. Yeah, just like with Warren Buffett, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, like none of these motherfuckers are still not paying taxes. And actually Myers makes an interesting point. He kind of flips it on its head in this section. By arguing that, in fact, it is the corporations that tax us, that tax its workers, that tax the customers, that tax the public mm-hmm. treasury and basically, uh, particularly the railroads, because not he he kind of says that, you know, as much control that like Rockefeller can have via standard oil to basically, quote unquote, tax. Everybody else, uh, you know, for his benefit at their expense via oil is a very powerful thing because oil is a central commodity. But the railroad is even better for a kind of rapacious uh, corporate, you know, tax hoarder because – you guess it, you be, you get to put a tax on the transit of everything of people of commodities of just about everything else and basically if people can't pay the freight rates which were which fluctuated all the fucking time back in the day in like egregious kind of profit gouging kind of ways then you couldn't ship your commodities on the train so they had immense leverage but before we get to that I just want to run through real quick like how did he make it from steamboat business owner to basically the railroad tycoon in really the span of like a decade, from like the 1850s to the 1860s. Well, I guess, as Myers said it, the first thing he did was he figured out how to grift off the federal government through uh, kind of Fraudulently uh, fleecing them on the mail trade. So I'll just read a little bit here, and then we'll move on to the Civil War real quick, and then we'll we'll get to the air. But I think we can we could power through this part of the biography. Mm-hmm. So um, so Myers asks, like, how did Vanderbilt manage to extort millions of dollars from? federal government the method was one of great simplicity many of its features were brought out in the u.s senate in the debate of june 1858 over the mail steamship bill the government had begun more than a decade back the policy of paying heavy subsidies to steamship companies for the transportation of mail this subsidy however was not the only payment received by the steamship uh, steamship owners In addition, they were allowed what were called postages, the full returns from the amount of postage on the letters carried. Ocean postage at that time was enormous and burdensome and was especially onerous upon a class of persons least able to bear it. About three quarters of the letters transported by ships were written by emigrants. They were taxed the usual rate of 24 or 29 cents for a single letter. In 1851, the amount received for transatlantic postages was not less than a million dollars. Three quarters of this sum came directly from the working class. So to get these subsidies in conjunction with the postages, the steamship owners, by one means or another, corrupted postal officials and members of Congress. Quote, and this is one of our rare, like, based uh, uh, bourgeois politicians that that tried to fight back. I have noticed, said Senator Toombs, in a speech in the Senate in 1858, that there has never been a head of a department strong enough to resist steamship contracts. I've noticed them here with your Whig party and your Democratic party for the last 13 years, and I've never seen any head of a department strong enough to resist these influences. 13 years experience has taught me that wherever you allow the post office or Navy department to do anything which is for the benefit of contractors, you may consider the thing is done. I could point to more than a dozen of these contracts. A million dollars a year is a power that will be felt. For 10 years, it amounts to $10 million, and I know it is felt. I know it perverts legislation. I have seen its influence. I have seen the public treasury plundered by it. So by means of this systematic corruption, the steamship owners received many millions of dollars of government funds. This was all virtually plunder. The returns from the postages far more than paid for the transportation of mails. And what became of these millions in loot? Part went in profits to the owners and another part was used as private capital by them to build more and newer ships constantly. Practically none of Vanderbilt's ships cost him a cent. The government funds paid for their building. In fact, a careful tracing of the history of all the subsidized steamship companies proves that this plunder from the government was very considerably more than enough to build and equip their entire lines. And so then Myers describes real quick a kind of this interesting feud that developed between E.K. Collins and company, which was a steamship line that ran from New York to Liverpool. And he says, uh, Collins debauched the postal officials in Congress so effectively that in 1847, he obtained appropriation of $387,000 a year and subsequently an additional appropriation of $475,000 for five years. Together with the postages, these amounts made a total mail subsidy for that one line alone during the latter years of the contract about a million dollars a year. And then basically he got in trouble because the reauthorization of this payment was uh, brought under scrutiny by people like Senator Toombs. And then there basically, this debate in the Senate, uh, some remarkable facts came out as to how the government was being steadily plundered and people wanted to know why it was the postal system was already burdened with a deficit of $5 million dollars. While the appropriation bill was being solemnly discussed with patriotic exclamations, lobbyists of the various steamship companies busied themselves with influencing or purchasing votes within the very halls of Congress. And almost the entire Senate was occupied for days with advocating this or that side as if they were paid attorneys pleading for the interest of either Collins or Vanderbilt. Already a bitter conflict was raging between these two millionaires. Vanderbilt's subsidized European lines ran to Southampton, Havre, and Bremen, Collins to Liverpool. There were indications that for years a secret understanding had been enforced between Collins and Vanderbilt by which they divided the male subsidy funds. Ostensibly, however, in order to give no sign of collusion, they went through the public appearance of warring upon each other. By this stratagem, they were able to ward off criticism of Monopoly and each get a larger appropriation than if it were known that they were in league. But it was characteristic of business methods that while in collusion, Vanderbilt and Collins constantly sought to wreck the other. One senator after another arose with perfervid effusion of either Collins or Vanderbilt. The Collins supporters gave out the most suave arguments why the Collins line should be heavily subsidized and why Collins should be permitted to change his European port to Southampton. Vanderbilt's retainers fought this move, which they declared would wipe out of existence the enterprise of great and patriotic capitalists. More on that in a minute. It was at this point that Senator Toombs, who represented neither side, cut in with a series of charges which dismayed the whole lobby for the time being. He denounced both Collins and Vanderbilt as plunderers, and then in so many words, specifically accused Vanderbilt of having blackmailed millions of dollars. This is, a, this is a real money quote here for everyone that thinks, like, conspiracies don't matter. Mm-hmm. I am trying, said Senator Toombs, to protect the government against collusion, not against conflict. I do not know but that these parties have colluded now. I have not the least doubt that all these people understand one another— I am struggling against collusion. If they've colluded, why should Vanderbilt run to Southampton for the postage when Collins can get $387,000 for running to the same place? Why may not Collins then sell his ships, sit down in New York and say to Vanderbilt, I will give you $230,000 and pocket $157,000 a year? that is the plain naked case the senator from vermont says the postmaster general will protect us that ain't nothing new it is the it is my duty in the first place to prevent collusion and prevent the country from being plundered to protect it by law as well as i can and then there was a whole like conspiracy well just run like i want to quote it real quick of basically the mail lines running to california and it came out this is you know proven in the senate trial that I guess the Pacific Mail Steamship Company and the United States Mail Steamship Company, uh, which are called the Harris and Slough Lines, um, Tombs alleged on the Senate floor that Vanderbilt threatening them with both competition and a public agitation such as would uncover the fraud had forced them to pay him gigantic sums in return for his silence and inactivity. Responsible capitalists, Senator Toombs said, had offered to carry the mails to California for $550,000. Everyone, Everybody knows, he said, that it can be done for half the money we pay now. Why then should we continue to waste the public money? You give $900,000 a year to carry the mails to California and Vanderbilt compels the contractors to give him $50,000 a month to keep quiet. This is the effect of your subventions. They pay lobby men, they pay agencies, they go to law because everybody is to have something. And I know this slew contract has been in Chancery in New York for years. The result of this system is that here comes a man, as old Vanderbilt seems to be. I never saw him, but his operations have excited my admiration. And he runs right at them and says, disgorge this plunder. He is the kingfish that is robbing these small plunderers that come about the capital. He does not come here for that purpose. But he says, fork over $56,000 a month of this money to me that I may lie in port with my ships. And they do it. So basically other people were ripping off the government and Vanderbilt found out and basically said, I'm going to rat on you unless you pay me like a vig every month of the yeah. amount that you're stealing from the government. Right. So he plundered the plunderers, basically. Um, yeah. yeah. There
2: was a lot of that going on. Yeah, he was completely like hypocritical in the way that he did it himself. There's an amazing anecdote later about when Gould basically... Uh, uh, cheated him out of a bunch of money by sort of conspiring with his associate, who who was Daniel Drew. And basically, he then was, like, like calling the police about how he'd been defrauded and, like, trying to, like, rally them and, like, go to the courts and everything. And they were like, well... We'll just do what you taught us to do, which is like bribe the legislature, <laughs> and then you know it's just yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. They learn the tricks of the game, and yeah, just for the record, if anybody who's like eh, that's un- unsubstantiated, the uh, I think the head of either the Harris or the Slu line uh, Fisher in 1860 testified. During the period of about four years and a half, I was one of the trustees of the steamship line. The earnings of the line were very large, but the greater part of the money was wrongfully appropriated to Vanderbilt for blackmail and to others on various pretexts. So even uh, even Horace F. Clark, Vanderbilt's son-in-law, one of the trustees of the United States Mail she- Steamship Company, likewise admitted the transaction. And of course, uh, (laughs) you know, Myers notes um, it is quite useless to ask whether Vanderbilt was criminally prosecuted or civilly sued by the government. Not only was he unmolested, but two years later, as we shall see, he carried out another huge swindle upon the government under peculiarly heinous conditions. fascinatingly notorious period of Vanderbilt's uh, career where he he discovers the bounty of war profiteering in probably one of the more egregious examples in American history, of which there are many, yes. right?
2: This is something that he actually was criticized and indicted for, and he was brought, you know, before Congress uh, to sort of justify what he did. But of course, he got completely away with it and was able to shift blame totally onto someone else basically who was his broker but yeah it was so outrageous that for once he actually did get in a little bit of trouble well he didn't really get in trouble uh he got in superficial trouble as he did a couple times throughout his career uh Mm -hmm. but nothing actually came of it and he was completely unpunished but yeah so uh,
1: like basically what he sees at the beginning of the civil war uh with the the disruption of shipping routes and the scouring the seas by privateers that business was basically on a sharp secular downturn and basically american ship owners had like an assortment of su- superfluous vessels on their hands and kind of you know no way to make money with them so they looked so vanderbilt went looking for new openings and he basically he wanted to offload these ships and then also find another way of making millions of dollars. So the first thing he did, like these vessels, uh, Myers writes, were of such scandalous construction that foreign capitalists would not buy them at any price. Hastily built in the brief period of 90 days, wholly with a view to immediate profit and with but a perfunctory regard for efficiency. Many of these steamers were in a dangerous condition. (laughs) That they survived voyages was perhaps due more to luck than anything else. Year after year, vessel after vessel, similarly built and owned, had gone down to the bottom of the ocean, Collins had lost many of his ships so had other steamship companies and you know, the chronicles of sea travel were a long gruesome succession of tragedies uh, thousands of immigrants inhumanly crowded in the enclosures of the steerage were swept to death without even a fighting chance for life um, cabin passengers fared better they were given the opportunity of taking to the lifeboats in cases where there was sufficient warning time and room You know, so a lot of death as well, just like the railroads. A lot of death on the sea, uh, due to the cutting corners uh, that you know people like Vanderbilt engaged in. So he decided, why not, uh, why not palm these vessels upon the government? A highly favorable time it was. The government, under the imperative necessity of at once raising and transporting a huge army, needed vessels badly. As for the other question, momentarily agitating the capitalists as to what new line of activity they could substitute for their own extinguished business, Vanderbilt soon showed how railroads could be made to yield a far greater fortune than commerce. So... Yeah, I mean, yeah. Basically, and by the way,
2: you yeah. know, they were being lauded at the time for their patriotism uh, mm-hmm. it, because of what they were doing, because they were providing uh, these, you know, uh, Myers writes, as one of the foremost capitalists of the time, Cornelius Vanderbilt has been constantly exhibited as a great and shining patriot. Precisely in the same way as Crefotte makes no mention of Vanderbilt's share in mail subsidy frauds, but in the contrary, ascribes to Vanderbilt the most splendid patriotism in his mail-carrying operations. So do Crefotte and other writers unctuously delay... Uh, wow, well, unctuously dilate—I've never heard this before. Mm. Well, I, mean, I know the word dilate, but I've never heard it used in this play—upon the old magnate's patriotic services during the Civil War. So there's a sort of romancing that has long gone unquestioned, although the genuine facts have been within reach. These facts show that Vanderbilt was continuing during the Civil War the prodigious frauds he had been carrying on. When Lincoln's administration decided in 1862 to send large military and naval forces to New Orleans under general banks— One of the first considerations was to get in haste the required number of ships to be used as transports. And, you know, to whom did the government turn in this exigency? To the very merchant class, which, since the foundation of the United States, continuously defrauded the public treasury. (laughs) Uh, You know, like you said, the owners of the ships have been eagerly waiting a chance to sell or lease them to the government at exorbitant prices. And to whom was the business of buying, equipping, and supervising them entrusted? other than Cornelius Vanderbilt. So, yeah, he, everyone was praising him for uh being uh what a patriot, uh you know, he was and just talking about how he was this, you know, really uh, great man, even though, of course, like all these people like basically bought their way out of having to actually fight. And Yeah, you know, and I they... assume their
1: children as well. Exactly. And he was old at this um, point, but yeah.
2: They took excellent care. He says that their own body should not be imperiled. Inspired by enthusiasm or principle a great away the working class including the farming and the professional elements Volunteered for military service. It was not long before the experience of disappointment and demoralization of camp life You know he talks about how we have their letters and everything as you can see like in a Ken Burns documentary Mm -hmm. But the property classes of the north loved comfort and power too well to look tranquilly upon any move to force them to enlist Uh, but the government once more revealed that it was but a register of the interests of the ruling classes and the draft act was actually changed uh, so that men of property could escape being conscripted into the army if they bought substitutes.
1: Yeah. So yeah. yeah. So they get those but Irish immigrants, like in gangs in New York, like coming fight, right off the boat. <laughs> just but give them a Union uniform.
2: Rich people didn't have to; they could just buy substi- uh, substitutes. But anyway, so what you said about the Immigration Act, or you know, the the condition of immigrant ships. What he actually ended up providing to the military for use in the war was actually worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why it was such a grave public scandal, uh, yeah. as Myers writes. You know, he was known to be mercenary and unscrupulous, yet he was selected by Secretary of War Stanton to act as the agent for the government. At this time, Vanderbilt was posing as a glorious patriot with most ostentation. He had loans to the government for a naval purpose, one of his ships a ship that he could not put to use himself and which, in fact, had been built with stolen public funds. (laughs) By this gift, he had cheaply attained the reputation of being a fervent patriot. Subsequently, it may be added, Congress turned a trick on him by assuming that he gave the ship to the government and, to his great astonishment, kept the ship and solemnly thanked him for the present. So the outfitting of this expedition was of such rank character that it provoked a grave public scandal. If the matter had been simply one of swindling the United States Treasury out of millions of dollars, it might have been passed over by Congress. On all sides, gigantic frauds were being committed by the capitalists. But in this particular case, the protests of the thousands of soldiers on board the transports were too numerous and effective to be silenced or ignored. These soldiers were not regulars without influence or connections. They were volunteers who everywhere had relatives and friends to demand an inquiry. Their complaints of overcrowding and of insecure broken-down ships poured in and aroused the whole country. A great stir resulted. Congress appointed an investigating committee. The testimony was extremely illuminative. It showed that in buying the vessels, Vanderbilt had employed one T.J. Southard, this is the guy who basically went down for him, Mm -hmm. to act as his handyman. Vanderbilt, it was testified by numerous ship owners, refused to charter any vessels unless the business were transacted through Southard, who demanded a share of the purchase money before he would consent to do business. Any ship owner who wanted to get rid of a superannuated steamer or sailing vessel found no difficulty if he acceded to Southard's terms." The vessels accepted by Vanderbilt and contracted to be paid for at high prices were in shockingly bad condition. Vanderbilt was one of the few men in the secret of the destination of Banks' expedition. He was—he knew that ships had to make an ocean trip. Yet he bought for ten thousand the Niagara, an old boat that had been built nearly a score of years before a trade uh, before for trade on Lake Ontario. Sorry, a little blur on this page. In perfectly smooth weather, reported Senator uh, Gimes of, Ohio, of Iowa, with a calm sea, the planks were ripped out of her and exhibited to the gaze of the indignant soldiers on board, showing that her timbers were rotten. The committee have in their committee room a large sample of one of the beams of this vessel to show that it has not the slightest capacity to hold a nail. <laughs> so he gave them, like, literally a rotting ship that was, mm-hmm. like, meant, like, to travel on a lake in calm water. <laughs> and he was, like, this it will sail across the ocean. He also, like, refused, like, it was sort of a regulation that ships should have navigators. You know, if you're gonna send them across the ocean, you're supposed to provide navigators, but he refused to do that because that would have cost, you know, that would have been his expense. Uh, When the question was asked of Commodore Vanderbilt, of course, you know, Commodore Vanderbilt, and of the other gentlemen in connection with the expedition, Why it was that they refused to hire more than one navigator and failed to provide instruments and charts. Why they did not take them, you know, uh, the answer was that the insurance companies and owners of the vessel took that risk. As though Senator Grimes, bitingly continued... The government had no risk in the lives of its valiant men, whom it had as enlisted under its uh, banner and set out in an expedition of this kind.
1: Yeah, yeah. So- Senator Grimes really caustically denounced Vanderbilt. He said the whole but- transaction shows a chapter of fraud from beginning to end, men making the most open professions of loyalty and of patriotism and of perfect disinterestedness coming before the committee and swearing that they acted from such motives only, such motives solely, were compelled to admit, at least one or two were, that in mm-hmm. some instances they received as high as six Six and a quarter percent that was like the yeah, the royalty or like the finder's fees they charged. And I believe that since then, the committee are satisfied in their own mind that the percent was greater than was in testimony before them. Senator Grimes added that he did not believe that Vanderbilt's name should be stricken from the resolution. In vain, however, did Senator Grimes plead. Vanderbilt's name was expunged and Southard was made the chief scapegoat. Although Vanderbilt had been tenderly dealt with in the investigation, his criminality was conclusively established. The affair deeply shocked the nation. After all, it was only another of many tragic events, demonstrating both the utter inefficiency of capitalist management and the consistent capitalist program of subordinating every consideration of human life to the mania for profits. Vanderbilt was only a type of his class. Although he was found out, he deserved condemnation no more than thousands of other capitalists, great and small, whose methods at bottom did not vary from his. Yet such was the network of shams and falsities which, with which the supreme class of the time enmeshed mesh society, that press, pulpit, university, and the so-called statesmen insisted that the wealth of the rich man had its foundation in ability and that this ability was indispensable in providing for the material wants of mankind." Ouch, uh,
2: nothing new under the sun. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they truly
1: really, nothing new under the sun. Like, like yeah. all the fucking infrastructure, the internet was built off of like DARPA money and like research grants from the taxpayers. And now yes, Jeff and to ride around in his like dick rocket. Yes, and like all these
2: different social institutions, yeah, just completely... Co- like Collaborate in enforcing the idea that everyone, like the, the wealth of these people, is based on ability, uh, that they deserve it in some yes. way. This is
1: the ontological premise that cannot fraud. be even yeah. like brought up because it, it is so much the weather, as I think. Um, it is, yeah. It's, it's the, weather. the weather. Yeah, as yeah. Uh, what is it? David Remnick said once about uh, the the New York Times. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, I you, yeah, I don't remember where.
2: It's the weather. I comes think it
1: was from, like a Mark Marin interview. Like, why do you think about the New York Times? And he was like, oh, "It's the weather." I felt like it was Watchmen. Oh, maybe it was something else. Uh, I thought it was the
2: show Watchmen that was the weather for some
1: reason. I think it was older than that. They said some horrible yeah. things too. But. Yeah. They definitely believe the New York Times is the weather, uh, but so is like making excuses for bloodthirsty capitalists and like all of their, you know, rapacious deeds. From press pulpit to university and the so-called statesmen, they're all just caping super hard. Yeah. So basically, he makes a bunch of money and doesn't get in trouble for any of that, and then he's able, uh, kind of around the same time, to kind of parlay that wealth into what really is like the big, the big jackpot of his life, which is railroads. And I think we just run through it real quick because it's very labyrinthine. It involves so much corruption, so much fraud, so much blackmail. Yeah. Like,
2: yeah, when he basically just, in order to get control of New York Central, he just refused to let anyone travel, like, through Albany because he controlled, like, the connection. Uh, <laughs> so basically, like, he shut down travel completely and, like, totally abdicated, like, any sense of, like, his duty to people to help them travel, like, as the owner of the railroad, just so that like the, the stock of the New York Central would go down and he would be able to like acquire it easily. Yeah, there's yeah, lots the, of- Yeah, uh, the
1: levels of stock manipulation between like different companies that he owned, like tanking the stock of one and juicing the stock of another, using shorts and things like the yeah. short selling and things like that. He was able to just like, I th- I'm pretty sure most of what he made his fortune on is at least on the books illegal today because we have like the SEC and some kind of laws. I don't know, I this. almost
2: feel like like he basically like established. I just feel like the reason why like it was I don't know, I I I almost feel the opposite that like now there are just like more robust systems in place for like uh, formalizing Everything that he did, and just making it a feature of the system. Mm, that's a good point. Uh, yeah, streamlining yeah. it. Yeah. yeah, maybe some of the specific
1: uh, tactics that he used, like basically like bribing people, insider trading, things like that, would be illegal. But the overall, the ability to like own gigantic concerns or sit on the board of like seventy different corporations or something, and then kind of not be looked yeah, at for conflicts of interest. Yeah, and just play them against interest. each other. Uh-huh.
2: Uh, and basically, like, yeah, because he owned both of them. He would be able to, you know, uh, like use one to uh, like compete with the other and thereby like manipulate the prices uh, of, of the stocks. Uh, in yes. Some way yeah. And the,
1: as you mentioned yeah. earlier earlier, uh, like Myers says, like you know, this didn't. This uh, competition didn't lead to the improvement of the railroads. In fact, uh, the various railroads that he bought were juggled with by succeeding groups of manipulators. Management was neglected, and no attention paid to proper equipment. Often, the physical layout of the railroads, the roadbeds, rails, and cars, were deliberately allowed to deteriorate in order that the manipulators might be able to lower the value and efficiency of the road and thus depress the value of the stock. Thus, for instance, Vanderbilt, aiming to get control of a railroad at a low price, might very well have confederates among some of the direct- directors or officials of that railroad who would resist or sli- uh, slyly thwart every attempted improvement and so scheme that the profits would constantly go down. As the profits decreased, so did the price of the stock in the stock market. The changing combinations of railroad capitalists were too absorbed in the process of gambling in the stock market to have any direct concern for management. It was nothing to them that this neglect caused frequent and heart-rending disasters. They were not held criminally responsible for the loss of life. In fact, the railroad wrecks often served their purpose in beating down the price of stocks and Incredible as this statement may seem, it is abundantly proved by the facts. So yeah, I mean, like literally, like sacrificing souls to like manipulate the stock price. This is where you see like the simulacra almost becoming more important than like the thing that it's signifying. In turn, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, it really has. Be- it takes on like it becomes kind of this abstract entity that is separate from the thing that it purports to represent, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and leads to that. So basically, yeah, it's like it, it literally does not matter in this system whether you're improving a railroad, or you're just... Or also, you know, talk about, like, you know, wh- who cares about conspiracies? That's dumb. Uh, that sounds pretty much like he was engaging in criminal conspiracies They have, like, double agents inside of rival railroads that he wanted uh, to buy to, like, purposely sabotage them, so, like, leading to death and destruction so that he could buy it at a lower price. That sounds pretty...
2: It's not possible for there to be any kind of double agent, because if enough people knew about the double agent, then... The, every, it would just find, you know, if you like hit 50 more than 50? Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah that's true. Well, I guess probably he kept it under 50 people who knew about his double agents and the other railroads. This is a great part, uh, just about, uh, he enac- it's called He Annexes a Second Railroad. Having found it so easy to get one railroad, he promptly went ahead to annex other railroads. By 1864, he loomed up as the owner of a controlling mass of stock in the New York and Hudson River Railroad. This line paralleled the Hudson River and had a terminal in the downtown section of New York City. In a way, it was a competitor of the New York and Harlem Railroad. The old magnet now conceived a brilliant idea. Why not consolidate the two roads? True, to bring about this consolidation, an authorizing act of the New York legislature was necessary, but there was little doubt of the legislature backing uh, Vanderbilt, uh, or sorry, no doubt of them balking. Vanderbilt there's like no periods in the copy that I have for some reason Vanderbilt well knew the means to ensure its passage in those years when the people were taught to look upon competition as indispensable there was a deep popular opposition to the consolidating of competing interests this it was feared would inflict monopoly the cost of buying legislatures to pass an act so provocative of popular indignation would be considerable but at the same time it would not be more than a trifle compared with the immense profits he would gain The consolidation would allow him to increase, or as the phrase went, "water" the stock of the combined roads. Although substantially owner of the two railroads, he was legally two separate entities. This is what we were just mentioning, Mm -hmm. or rather, the corporations were. As the owner of one line, he could bargain with himself as the owner of the other, and could determine what the exchange purchase price should be. (laughs) You know, so by a juggle, he could yeah uh, issue. Love to compete with myself. Right, yeah, and uh, these many millions of bonds and stocks would not cost him personally a cent. The sole expense, the bribe funds, and the cost of engraving he would charge against his corporations. Immediately, these stocks and bonds would be vested with a high value inasmuch as much as they would represent mortgages upon the productivity of tens of millions of people of that generation and still greater numbers of future generations. By putting up traffic rates and lowering wages, dividends could be paid upon the entire outpouring of stock, thus beyond a doubt ensuring its permanent value. And this section, Cunning, yeah, exactly, Cunning Against Cunning. The numerous millions taken in by Vanderbilt in these transactions came from a host of other men who would have plundered him as quickly as he plundered them. They came from members of the legislature who had grown rich on bribes for granting continuous succession of special privileges, or to put it in a more comprehensible form, licenses to individuals and corporations to prey in a thousand and one forms upon the people. They came from bankers, railroad, land, and factory owners, all of whom had assiduously bribed Congress, legislatures, common councils, and administrative officials to give them special laws and rights by which they could all the more easily and securely grasp the produce of the many and hold it intact without even a semblance of taxation. The very nature of that system of gambling called stock market or cotton or produce exchange speculation showed at once the sharply defined disparities and discriminations in law. Common gambling, so called, was a crime. The gambling of the exchanges was legitimate and legalized, and the men who thus gambled with the resources of the nation were esteemed as highly respectable and responsible leaders of the community. For a penniless man to sell anything he did not own, or which was not in existence, was held a heinous crime and was severely punished by a long prison term. But the members of the all-powerful property class could contract to deliver stocks which they did not own or which were non-existent, or they could gamble in produce often not yet out of the ground, and the law saw no criminal act in their performances. Far from being under the inhibition of the law, these methods were duly legalized. So, you know... They, because they made the code of laws as it stood, and if any data denies that laws at all times would exactly corresponded with the interests and aims of the ruling class, all that is necessary is to compare the laws of the different periods with the profitable methods of that class. And you will find that these methods, however despicable, violent and cruel, were not only indulgently omitted from the recorded category of crimes, but were elevated by prevalent teaching to be commercial virtues and ability of a high order. Oof, damn. Yeah, yeah uh, spitting that
1: fire. Exactly. Yes. Like, literally, we live in this world still. Yes. Mm. Hmm. Yeah. So then he grabbed a third railroad, the New York Central, one of the richest in the country, and you know he he basically kept this pattern going of like consolidating, buying railroads, consolidating them, uh, playing them against each other, like not actually putting up any money himself. I love it that all these people. I think it says later that it was either Vanderbilt or Gould who like expensed their bribes like to the corporations they worked for. <laughs> Mm-hmm. so it's like a lot li- they found like a line item in the budget like legislative expenses or something like that like five hundred thousand dollars they're like uh i forget what that was about yeah but they literally it's like they, they don't put up their own money that, that that's another thing that's like so fucking obnoxious it's like they put up their own money so they deserve to benefit yeah. you know i guess like vent, they're the venture self, capital they're
2: self-made
1: yeah self-made no their money made that which is to say like the people who the money employed I, to actually well, build it built it well, they were literally able to
2: do things like promise to deliver something that didn't exist just because, yeah, they had the incredible wealth to legitimize this and allow it to happen.
1: Yeah. And I think they cool. tried to put like a profit limit in New York on like if the railroad's profits exceeded something like 10 percent, then the people would have like a, the representatives would vote on like basically they would take that that profit and like return it to the public treasury but i feel like that law was just completely flouted and ignored probably because he bribed everybody that would have enforced it so you know um, it, you can you can yeah. clearly see the popular distaste for monopoly almost all the way down not just from like the vast working classes but also from the middle class competitors which i think throughout this volume myers mentions a few times how they were kind of batted in between the great poor masses and the silk toppers and they increasingly felt this anxiety that the rise of the trust and the monopolies and these huge corporations were going to kind of eat their lunch and make them yeah, obsolete yeah we
2: mentioned that it was yeah. i think i hope we that was in the part that uh is preserved maybe but yeah we talked about how like it's funny to hear him like Basically lament the demise of the middle class. Well, I guess he's not lamenting because he, to them uh, he you know to him, he rightly recognizes that they're also uh, exploiters of the working class and they're just yeah. upset because uh, you know their ability to do so is uh, being sucked away into mm-hmm. the ruling class and their uh, class vision is disappearing. But yeah. it's it's interesting to see him discuss the disappearance of the middle class, even like in this time in 1910. hundred years uh, ago. This is something that he's, yeah, exactly. More than a hundred years ago.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, we're still dealing with it today and you still hear about that anxiety, like the disappearing middle class, like, yeah. you know, and like small businesses being taken over by Google, like the new trusts, the new mega corporations, which do, the more you read about this, it feels like it's just like a 21st century update on the same kind of model you know, um, where yeah. you have these extravagantly wealthy individuals that build this kind of a infrastructure that by all accounts, like by a million different ways you want to look at it, should probably be some kind of public utility. And yet, yeah. and yet just somehow bumbling Congress just like doesn't have their exactly. eye on the ball and Well, it's and the same oops. system
2: where like everyone kind of knows that it's like egregious and totally wrong. And like not conscientious, but it just like keeps marching on, and like we still get the same thing, like the sort of same half measures where we get like these fake figures, like the Teddy Roosevelt of the mm-hmm. time, or you know even from on both sides, you know both sides of the the meaningless political distinction, where we have like you know AOC talking about how we're gonna you know raise the taxes or have like the Green New Deal, or Trump oh, yeah. talking about how he's gonna bring the jobs back, yeah, or yeah something just like that, where, like. Talk yeah, but really, like everything just keeps marching on in this exact direction, and like Bill Gates gets all the farms so that he can talk about what a great humanitarian he is while uh, continuing all of the practices that he uh, represents as being abusive. and yeah, you know. yeah, and
1: actually, there's a great example of that, um, I think on page one seventy three where again, Myers brings up kind of his take on reformists in general, of which he has a pretty mm-hmm. low opinion of. He's talking about a, a particular scandal involving Boss Tweed and Vanderbilt because they were heavily involved with one another. Uh, in 1872, Vanderbilt went to the legislature. That legislature, whose members he had so often bought like so many cattle, this particular legislature, however, was elected in 1871 following the revelations of the Tweed Ring frauds. It was regarded as a quote model reform body. As he has already been as has already been remarked in this work, the pseudo reform officials or bodies elected by the American people in the vain hope of overthrowing and corruption, will often go to greater lengths in the disposition of the people's rights and interests than the most hardened politicians because they are not suspected of being corrupt, and their measures have the appearance of being enacted for the public good. Sound familiar? The Tweed clique had been broken up, but the capitalist who had assiduously bribed its members and profited so hugely from its political acts were untouched and in greater power than ever before. The source of all this corruption had not been struck at in the slightest. Tweed, the politician, was sacrificed and went to prison and died there, The capitalists who had corrupted representative bodies everywhere in the United States before and during his time were safe and respected and in a position to continue their work of corruption. Tweed made the classic unforgivable blunder of going into politics as a business instead of into commercialism. The very capitalists who had profited so greatly by his corruption were the first to express horror at his acts. From the reform, he puts in quotes, legislature of 1872, Vanderbilt secured all that he sought. The act was so dexterously worded that while not nominally giving a perpetual franchise, it practically revoked the qualified parts of the Charter of 1832. It also compassionately relieved him of the necessity of having to pay out about $4 million in replacing the dangerous roadway by imposing that cost upon New York City. Once these improvements were made, Vanderbilt bonded them as though they had been made with private money. So cool. You know, I guess uh, there also the reform legislature also... I think they gave him um a ninety nine hundred and ninety nine year lease of the fourth avenue uh rail rail car line in new york mm-hmm. city and yeah. uh he didn't have to pay any taxes and yeah, he was allowed to extend the line on the public dime and uh and do all kinds of chicanery, and these reformists basically allowed him to do it. Yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah, the Vanderbilt's in 1894, so that must have been his son or his grandson, leased that 4th Avenue line for 999 years to the Metropolitan Street Railway Company, controlled by those eminent financiers, William C. Whitney and others, whose monumental briberies, thefts, and piracies have frequently been uncovered in official investigations. For almost a thousand years, unless a radical change of conditions comes, the Vanderbilts will draw a princely revenue from the ownership of this franchise alone. So I wonder what happened to the Fourth Avenue, if that got emerged into the subway system. But nonetheless, like the, to have a 999 year title of ownership to like a subway line in the big, just like fuck yeah. off. Yeah,
2: You know what? Something that we didn't actually get to go into like so much uh, when we previously recorded this episode, but mm-hmm. uh, is an interesting kind of angle on what you brought up in terms of like the discourse of conspiracy versus like sort of the faceless maw or the, (laughs) uh, you know, grand social forces or things like that (laughs) is the fact that during this time, and to an extent even now, the I mean, I think that... Maybe we did kind of allude to this previously and you mentioned that January 6th as being an example. you know, conspiracy is always discarded so flippantly when it's about people of great power, great wealth. Mm-hmm. But it's an accusation that's also like very readily deployed against. Uh, workers, you know, against uh, other groups. Yes. You know, uh, absolutely. He he
1: gets a little bit in here about the Haymarket uh, riots, which Myers, Mm -hmm. to his credit, uh, definitely calls out as like a probable false flag and just talks about the Pinkertons. We've done a lot of research and stuff we were writing a few years ago about the extent of Pinkerton fuckery. In, you yeah. know basically disrupting any kind of labor union or workers organization that existed and constantly inveighing in the press about how these people represented one or another sadistic, sinister conspiracy that stretched across the entire country and then later on that kind of morphed into like the red scare anti-communism of like everybody's a a sicko bolshevik who wants to overthrow our great our great government that serves us so well like conspiracism i think that um carl oglesby was definitely right about that that's like standard operating procedure for the that's a great passage
2: of that book but this is i think this is a really telling part about the Haymarket tragedy mm-hmm. uh, sorry to uh, rudely interrupt you but i think you'll appreciate this paragraph <laughs> okay. uh, the uh it talks about the Haymarket uh, incident the hurling of the bomb whether done by a secret emissary or by a sympathizer with labor the lever which the property class had been feverishly awaiting great how that always works out you know they always Mm, get uh, you know just the we always slip uh, up you know and
1: and give them exactly what they want
2: yeah Mm. (laughs) spies fielding and their comrades not to be not like spies like uh, espionage agents but this name of uh, you know uh, one of the uh, uh, sort of organizers Mm -hmm. uh, fielding and their comrades were at once cast into jail the newspapers invented wild yarns of conspiracies and midnight plots and raucously demanded the hanging of the leaders the trifling formality of waiting until their guilt had been proved was not considered. The most significant event, however, was the secret meeting of about three hundred leading American capitalists to plan the suppression of "quote unquote" anarchy. <laughs> so, like, at the, while everyone was like up in arms about like the conspiracies and the secret midnight plots between you know these anarchists, uh-huh. uh, there was a secret meeting among all these capitalists about what to do about the "quote unquote" anarchists. Sounds like the original uh,
1: committee of three hundred that I think was big during the Cold War, which served a kind of similar purpose at the end of the day, but yeah, 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 funny how Um, they all, I I wonder if they were in a room that was filled with smoke, you know? Uh, maybe, I mean, you know, uh,
2: (laughs) very, uh, very horrified they professed themselves to be at violent outrages and destruction of property and of life. Their views were given wide circulation and commendation. They were the finest types of commercial success and prestige. They were the owners of railroads that slaughtered thousands of human beings every year because of the demands of profit, of factories which sucked the very life out of their toilers, and which filled the hospital slums, brothels, and graveyards with an ever-increasing assemblage. Every man in that conclave as a beneficiary of the existing system had drained his fortune from the sweat, sorrow, miseries, and death agonies of a multitude of workers. These are the men who came forth to form the Citizens Association and within a few hours subscribed $100,000 as a fighting fund. So then there was like a kangaroo court where, you know, they uh, tried everyone with a jury that was obviously packed. And yeah, this is actually the relevant part where uh, in a a slightly subsequent section uh, called Capitalist Triumph by Fraud, This is actually where, uh, you know, relevant to our discussion of of reformers, we have uh, uh, Theodore Roosevelt mentioned Theobelt. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the New York City election of 1886, three parties contested, the Labor Party, Tammany Hall, and the Republican Party. Steeped in decades of the most loathsome corruption, Tammany Hall was chosen as the medium by which the Labor Party was to be defrauded and effaced. Pretending to be the champion of the people's rights and boasting that it stood for democracy against the aristocracy, Tammany Hall had long deceived the mass of people to plunder them. It was a powerful, splendidly organized body of mercenaries and self seekers, which, by trading on the principles of democracy, had been able to count on the partisan votes of a predominating element of the wage working class. In reality, however, it was absolutely directed by a leader or quote unquote boss who, with his Confederates, made a regular traffic of selling legislation to the capitalists. On the one hand and who on the other enriched themselves by a colossal system of blackmail. They sold immunity to pickpockets, confidence men and burglars, compelled the saloon keepers to pay for protection, and even extorted from the wretched women of the street and brothels. This was the organization that the ruling class with its fine assumptions of respectability now depended upon to do its work of breaking up the political labor revolt. The candidate of Tammany Hall was the ultra respectable Abram S. Hewitt, a millionaire capitalist, the Republican Party nominated a verbose, pushful, self glorifying young man who, by a combination of fortuitous circumstances, later attained the position of President of the United States. This was Theodore Roosevelt, the sign of a moderately rich New York family and a remarkable character whose pugnacious disposition, indifference to political conventionalities, capacity for exhortation, and bold political shrewdness were mistaken for greatness of personality. (laughs) The phenomenal success to which he subsequently rose is characteristic of the prevailing turgidity and confusion of the popular mind. Both Hewitt and Roosevelt were, of course, acceptable to the Capitol's class. As, however, New York was normally a city of democratic politics, and as Hewitt stood the greater chance of winning, the support of those opposed to the labor movement was concentrated upon him. Yes. So.
1: And the third candidate, I believe, in that race was Henry George, who, yes. you know, uh, was an was interesting, eclectic, sort of a socialist of the late 1800s who was really big on like land tax Oh, uh, yeah, Georgism by yeah, uh, itself, itself
2: was named for Henry George. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. It would be interesting to do an episode on Henry George one day because actually uh, Myers says that he was the odds-on favorite to win the race and become mayor of New York, and then Tammany Hall literally stuffed the ballot boxes. Um, they stole it. It was a fake election, folks. And they basically uh, – I forget if, if – did a. Uh, Did Teddy Roosevelt end up winning that, or did the Tammany Hall candidate? Either way, Henry George did not win, but it was basically an outright electoral fraud. And they, you know, I think they were able to split the vote enough and then stuff the ballot boxes that they uh, defrauded uh, Henry George and, you know, prevented the Labor Party from taking power there, which is pretty cool. And, yeah, yeah, and I guess, you know, according to Myers, uh, Roosevelt's reformist bona fides were... uh, kind of laughable at the end of the day. Like when he actually did make any kind of attempt to like stand up to the trusts, they kind of smacked him down and reformed in different ways that he couldn't get at. So to the extent that he even cared, he was not super successful because I think by the time his presidency was over, like Standard Oil had been broken up, but then it just like reconstituted into like five mega companies that eventually, you know, like we've said a million times, like T-1000, like re-congealed together. Mm-hmm. Um, more yes. powerful than ever. Oh yeah, and we're, when you were talking about the three hundred capitalists in Chicago, were you referring to the Citizens Association? Yes, that's yes, what they and so formed, they would yeah. go on. I think we mentioned on "You Can't Win" the uh, Secret Six and the what was it, like the Citizens' Society for the Prevention of Crime in Chicago? <laughs> yes. That's literally uh, where we got the term silk topper from uh, yes. when a, a certain podcaster's grandfather was assaulted like that his parents <laughs> outside of an opera house <laughs> by some uh, very based revolutionary comrades who declared, we don't like silk toppers, and then ripped their silk tops off. And then the uh, father um, of that individual uh, like this is like in the paper, like to, like summoned the Secret Six, which were like literally six secret industrialists in Chicago that had like a vigilante network to stop quote unquote crime, but actually like they their entire resources were marshaled to hunt down these anti silk topper sickos that had the audacity to ruffle up somebody's silk top. Yeah. You know, so it's like that's this is the origin of that at least in Chicago, which is very interesting. We'll come back and you know, and also in I think we'll we'll get a little. I think towards the end of this book, there's even some like uh, you know Jerome Arizona uh, and connections to what we talked about, like the Jerome deportation and the Bisbee uh, yes. uh, de- deportation yeah deportation during World War One, which mm-hmm. is the same Chicago group of people, same uh, familial people as well from yeah, different sides of the family. Yeah,
2: a certain name. Uh, happen to come up again uh, in this book uh, uh yeah we'll you get there we'll, you we'll get sure there when we if go to there was any Thing to that,
1: in this case, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The, that connection is somewhat tenuous. We'll we'll yeah, get to right. it, but uh, mm-hmm. but it is it is interesting. But the, the the familial connection through like the Citizens Association down to like the APL down to deporting the IWW in World War One that is a direct uh, familial connection, which yes. I'll, mm-hmm. I'll I'll elaborate on later. We don't need to get too far <laughs> on it, but yeah. So uh, just to say real quickly, like you know, after Vanderbilt finally died, he left his you know, fortune to his uh, to I think his his main son was it William Vanderbilt, and then yeah. you know basically started this yeah William H Vanderbilt who invested heavily in the Reading Railroad to take control of Pennsylvania's anthracite mines, which he mostly yeah. did. He betrayed Another a bunch of other. Another famous
2: incident with the Molly Maguires, where yeah, as yeah. you mentioned, Pinkertons uh, mm-hmm. at the behest of you know uh, the capitalists, like basically framed a bunch of people. Uh, yes. Yes, you know, and end,
1: end up. Uh, we will do an episode yeah. on that one day. Where yeah, yeah. nineteen uh, Irish, uh, uh, to some probably legit radicals, others uh, falsely accused were hanged in one of the most. <laughs> really, if you want a glimpse into like the. Like jurisprudence and like legal system of like the late 1800s, it's really a great case study because it's yeah, like, okay. what if the railroad tycoon who wants these people dead became the prosecutor? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. It's like, what the fuck? And like his yeah. friend who like ran for governor. And lost and blames it on the labor movement is the judge. <laughs> like, yes. what if the jury was all Germans who didn't speak English?
2: <laughs> and what, what I mean? if, like, the entire thing was instigated by, like, an undercover pinkerton agent? <laughs>
1: yeah. Uh, it <Doing laughs> uh, <who laughs> was, like, the Basically.
2: leader of the conspiracy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, um,
1: Wonderful. I love our system. Thank God yes. that we don't live in a Stalinist hellhole uh, where we have, yeah. we have real and legal Thank rights. God there's
2: never, ever been a conspiracy and the broad social forces arrange these uh, entertainment. Dramas that no one has any intentionality in whatsoever. Yes,
1: yes. Oh, um, uh, another thing, just briefly worth mentioning, is one of the things that um, William H. Vanderbilt got into now that he was such a, a tycoon, he suddenly developed an interest in art. And so he was one of the real trailblazers of a billionaire just like showering like truckloads of money onto the art world and then getting a bunch of cred for being basically a person of high class and good taste and sophistication. But apparently like he literally would like send his art agents to Paris and stuff and he would pay by like the foot for art. <laughs> like he, he thought the like, bigger canvases were just worth more and really had like no, you know. Well, he,
2: I mean, it's so funny. Yeah, because I've seen like, I remember uh, it stuck in my mind, you know, this is kind of a, you know, not a, a direct analogy. Uh, there's, there's a difference between these two phenomena, of course, but I remember watching like this uh one episode of uh, some show like MTV Cribs, or it was some kind of show like that. And, you know, the person just had this like vast, huge like penthouse apartment that was mostly empty and, and like, you know, very sparsely furnished, but he had all these paintings that were just stacked all along the floor like all like leaning <laughs> against the sides of the walls just like like rows and rows of paintings you know like it's oh it's oh my
0: god
1: yeah it's sick it's sick yeah you know these these so yeah like again, they were leaning against new. the
2: floor like yeah like uh, you know like a discarded you know, that they, feels
1: very much like a thing Andrew Getty would do.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> he just, like, throws yeah, like,
1: Picasso on the floor like face down. Yeah, uh, there's uh, yeah. like
2: a five million dollar like Archaeopteryx like skeleton like <laughs> jangled in the corner. You know, yeah, like.
1: Uh, Yeah, yeah. So, um, oh, and the the final thing I'll say is like, once you started getting in with the the grandchildren of Cornelius Vanderbilt, they started intermarrying, which is, again, like, that's a pattern we notice with these families, whether it's to preserve their fortunes so it doesn't get split up too much. That's why oftentimes, like, there's kind of an interesting tendency of like third and fourth cousins from this mm-hmm. kind of New Englandy world to keep on marrying each other so as not to dilute like the original fortune. And of course they're all investing it in the market as they go. So like these fortunes are just the capital is making money for them the whole time. So you know they got up to seven hundred million dollars by the time of Gustavus Myers writing it. And I wonder how much seven hundred million is today. I just wanna look up that real quick because I, I looked up the other day that John D. Rockefeller had the equivalent of $400 billion in his time.
2: Like, I mean, again, I think we talked about this, like, on one of our Q&A episodes, we were asked about, like, these sort of Forbes lists of, like, the richest people and, you know, who really, like, how do those, like, uh, reckonings really deal with wealth? Like, how do they consider people's assets? Like, how do they talk about wealth, like, across generations, things like that, you know? Mm -hmm. It seems like there's different ways that one could appraise someone's Wealth. Absolutely. Yeah, I
1: think if you, because somebody asked me the other day, and I Googled like Rockefeller family net worth, and of course, there's like, it's very hard to like pin down any kind of precise number, but a lot, most of like the websites I saw were like putting it between nine and 12 billion dollars for the entire family. And I think there's over 150 heirs to John D. Rockefeller that are around. You know, today. So the idea that like 150 people are splitting this like 11 billion dollar pot when their you know great grandfather, great great grandfather controlled 400 billion dollars in his day, like where do, mm-hmm. where the fuck did all that money go? You know what I mean? Like they are yeah. still invested, they're still wealthy. Like they did like David Rockefeller was the head of Chase Manhattan Bank for like decades. Like I I, I call total bullshit on that. That you guys only have 12 billion dollars like between all of you. So like that's, I think because, okay, if the Rockefeller family just hypothetically or the Vanderbilt family had to say, uh, yeah, we actually own like $4 trillion for our entire family. That probably would, even in our extremely, like, capital-pilled society, probably provoke some kind of outrage. And people would say that's <laughs> egregious. I
2: mean, I wonder, because well, it's still outrageous anyway, the amount of money that they publicly have. It
1: is. Uh, but, you know, but, what, what, here's the thing. That- like, they're put up— as inferior to the pinnacle of the public capitalists that exist today, which is like Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, Mm -hmm. who were supposed to believe that that's the very tippy-top of the amount of money you could basically uh, hoard, is like $300 billion, if you're like a big tech guru kind of person. But to say that, oh, well, these guys have done well, but actually there's like a couple dozen families that have like over a trillion dollars, like collectively, then... It kind of undercuts like their you know public role that I think is helpful for well you know
2: something that I think is, I'm thinking of you know a movie that I, I think you've seen and that I, I just saw yesterday so it's on my mind you know not to divert things of the popular culture but I do think that's an interesting example or uh, you know point of instruction or reference uh, which is uh, the movie Pig <laughs>
0: yeah um, yeah I did see it what comes to
2: mind uh, vis-a-vis vis that movie is that you know in that movie. It seems as if the character portrayed by Nicolas Cage, you know, he has nothing really in terms of, like, material wealth, necessarily. You know, uh, he's very materialistic in that way. But when the plot sort of requires him to manifest uh, his social capital, he's able to do so, like, very easily because he has a name that he can trade on. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he's really able to move with incredible freedom through, like, you know, the upper echelons of society, yeah, uh, yeah. despite being, in a way, like, unwelcome to the plot of the movie. Uh, and, of course, this is a fictional scenario, but I think that that is, in a way, uh, indicative of, like, the way that, you know, capital can function. You know, like, Gustavus Myers talks about how, you know, this money is, in a way, an abstraction of, like, the power of control over life. Mm. You know, the control over human life, of our relationship with nature, even. Yeah. Uh, and I think that if you think about capital in that way... Then you might end up with a different uh, adjudication of, you know, especially and like familial ties might be more relevant to that type of appreciation of uh, how wealth and, and power are are exercised. Yeah, um,
1: I think it's and, dialectical. Yeah. I think that's what's coming into clear. It's like almost more so than the Yankee and cowboy divide. It's like the rapacious industrialist, like striver, and the landed high class families that have been here since like 1650 are like they're constantly combining forces to sustain the other like uh i think that like
2: for instance consider like the incredible investment that like getty made in the getty museum you know that is like an expenditure of money uh like for like quote unquote like the public use you know like there isn't necessarily a return on that investment in the sense of money you know what i mean but to say that there isn't a return on that investment. In some way, I feel like power. would be naive. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Exactly.
1: I mean, this is a guy yeah. who like wouldn't pay kidnappers like a ransom for his grandson. Exactly.
2: Yeah. But the biggest the, miser yeah, 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 you ever exactly. knew, and Vanderbilt but too, he was is like an extreme right. miser. But he just wanted people to have access to the unicorn pictures so so badly <laughs> that he was he was willing to you know yeah he wouldn't let there be actual non-pay phones. He he put pay phones in his house to yeah. force his maids and servants to use the pay phone. Yeah uh, that's how yeah. miserly he was. He didn't but, want to be
1: interrupted yeah. of like humiliating JP JP Getty Jr in front of his grandson and like ask like his grandson questions that his dad got wrong when he was a kid and then go hoag hoag hog you know Yeah <laughs> like what a fucking psycho but you know oh go go Yeah, Yeah <laughs> yeah oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes um yeah. but uh, who was it
2: it was some figure in this book uh, I think maybe who we talked about in the previous volume who was like praised for the way that like he gave his wealth away to orphans because he didn't have like, you know, a family to pass things on to. That was one of the early uh,
1: Boston merchants. He was like one of the yeah, first to do it. And after being was like, like so
2: like, you know, like after being so, like you said, like rapacious and so greedy and modestly throughout his entire life. You know, then he gave like this endowment at the end of his life. Yeah. You know, and like, yeah. does that real? you know, it's like. Well,
1: just like how Henry Ford hated philanthropy almost as much as he hated Jews and, you know, <laughs> didn't, and thought, distrusted it and thought like, basically if you give a mouse a cookie, it's going to want like healthcare and other things like that. So like fuck yes. workers, I don't want to give them shit. But then at the end they were fake, because it was the New Deal era, that his children were facing this like huge estate tax burden. And so that's when like they spun off the Ford Foundation, which then became a vehicle for like CIA ruling class like conspiracies to like basically do all kinds of like culture manipulation and like seed people into countries where like help launch coups and all kinds of fun shit like that. So, you know, their money stays moving and, um, and yeah, the, the Vanderbilts married into the Whitney family. And of course they have the Whitney Museum, right? And they're right, connected, yeah. I think, with the maybe it was in the first episode where we, we broke down like the Roosevelt, Whitney, like Van Cortland, like there were like seven names yeah. attached to it. Where I like,
2: grew up, like everything is named after the Whitneys. And the Vanderbilts. Mm-hmm. Everything is named to the two of them. They're so great. Uh,
1: and also, yeah. uh, Gustavus Meyers notes kind of comically that uh, at one point in, ni- in 1892, when the uh, the workers, I think, in Buffalo, working for one of Vanderbilt's railroads, went on strike for shorter hours and more pay... Um, Vanderbilt had the governor of New York send out the entire state militia 8,000 people uh, with machine guns and bayonets to basically stop the strikers from picketing but um, if however the Vanderbilts could not afford to pay their workers a few cents more in wages a day, they could afford to pay millions of dollars for matrimonial alliances with foreign titles. These excursions into the realm of high caste European nobility have thus far cost the Vanderbilt family about 15 or 20 million dollars when impecunious counts lords, dukes, and princes having wasted the inheritance originally obtained by robbery and perpetuated by robbery are in the anxious lookout for marriages with great fortunes, and the American money magnets satiated with vulgar wealth aspire to titled connections, the arrangement becomes easy. Romance can be dispensed with, and the lawyers depended upon to settle the preliminaries. So yeah, I guess uh, Consuelo, uh, the daughter of William K. Vanderbilt, married the Duke of Marlborough in 1895. There are a couple marriages like this, uh, where they basically married, just like the Aster family. They married, they literally married into European royalty, which is kind of the ultimate example of, you know, basically people that have title and social capital accumulated over centuries, but don't always because many of them were impecunious, uh, were a little bit short on cash. So I think, you know, that, that's the other thing about these, like, New England families is, like, we're not necessarily saying every single one of these families was ultra wealthy from the very beginning, but being at the top of of society having that reserve of social capital meant that as long as you married a really successful business person like every generation or two you basically could kind of stay up at the top I think I retweeted something recently that was basically saying that like the top families in Florence mostly haven't changed since the 15th century like in terms of family wealth like the top 25% of families in Florence are like still there (laughs) you know what I mean yeah. Like, how many things have changed in the last 700 years? But, like, when you have those privileges and they don't get overthrown by something like, say, like a social revolution, then, you know, <laughs> they stay there and they fester and basically uh, clog up the entire – like, they have they maintain the ultimate, the meta-monopoly over the entire political legal process, which, you know, uh, which draws these, like – Daniel plainview ass motherfuckers like moths to a flame. And then that's because the, you need both those things. The other thing I remember reading recently was it took three or four generations for the Rockefellers to be actually invited to join the Knickerbocker Club in New York. And that was one of like the oldest, waspiest kind of gentlemen's like societies in Manhattan. And even though Rockefeller, I think, comes from like a pretty old lineage in America, you know, he was the son of a con man uh, out in Ohio, and he, he didn't have quite that pedigree that you know, a real silk topper from like, Connecticut had. So it took until like, his grandchildren, after they had, amassed, they had amassed the biggest fortune, at least that's what we're told, in the history of the United States. It took them three generations to be admitted into the Knicker Brockler Club. So now that tells you something, that this social capital is guarded very jealously because it's very powerful right but it also yeah. it has to be married literally in a way with capital to have its full effect and capital without social you know kind of I, then you're just like trump you're like uh, yeah. like a guy who has a billion dollars but like nobody fucks with you so like how much can you really do Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, well,
2: basically, be the Theodore Roosevelt equivalent uh, of the modern day, uh, and yeah. be like, a, or even the uh, Hewitt equivalent, the Abraham Hewitt equivalent, uh, <laughs> where you're like talking about how you're going to help the common man or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah.
1: But then you just get, you know. Yeah, no. I mean, they my, did, somebody did take a shot.
2: Some,
1: yeah, somebody did shoot Roosevelt in like 1912 when he ran as a third party. So, right, yeah. You know, and
2: he continued speaking through it, right? Mm-hmm.
1: He did. Yeah. That, he, that was I a, have a
2: bullet in my <laughs> belly. <laughs> I remember it very clearly, yes. Um, yeah, yeah.
1: We were all there. Right? Yeah. Why
2: was he shot? Good well, question. What? I'd
1: like to go into that and see. Mm, I feel like somebody lied and it wasn't just a psychotic lone gunman, because how many of them really are?
2: And William McKinley actually was assassinated before him. It yeah, was, by uh, a yeah, I great I Polish-American,
1: uh, uh, Leon Chulkoosh.
2: <laughs> in fact, I think that Roosevelt was, like, because sca- he was such a you know an outdoorsman, he was scaling what would eventually become Mount McKinley in Alaska at the time. And the Secret Service, like, clambered up to, like, the top of Mount wow. McKinley to, like, find him and tell him that he had become president. I feel that's, like that's, like, something from some, like, really... You know, yeah. Laudatory uh, Panegyric Roosevelt Biography, uh, but you know it was definitely represented as true by by somebody. That sounds uh, so,
1: T.R. as fuck. Uh,
2: yeah, it's very very much part, uh, very much in line with the sort of legend of, of T.R. But mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Uh, McKinley um, is interesting because he like seemed to survive but then died. Anyway, died. Yeah, kind of like
1: Garfield. Uh, Garfield, another one who got shot under strange circumstances. Kind of a populist, but also a Freemason. And and also mentioned in, in this book as uh, dealing in corruption in an uh, egregious way, just is, like everybody else.
2: This is interesting. I didn't actually realize this at all. Roosevelt was shot at point-blank range by a delusional saloon caper named John Flaming Schrank, who believed that the ghost of assassinated President William McKinley had directed him to kill Roosevelt.
0: Whoa. <laughs> okay,
1: Okay, uh, putting that on the list.
2: Don't forget that he had that story about Bigfoot, too. Uh,
1: oh yeah, didn't well, I don't think he
2: yeah. actually experienced Roosevelt, but he told it secondhand. Yeah, was he trying parks? to like uh, protect Bigfoot? Uh, I, well, exactly. Uh, <laughs> from the from well, there are the, all those mysterious appearances What is going on with Roosevelt? Uh, don't forget like, don't the know. Rough Riders and oh, all yeah, that yeah. stuff. Trying
1: to fuck the, with Cuba you, know
2: the Spanish-American War.
1: Yeah, yeah, he was a real dark cowboy.
2: He was yeah, he was d- very much a dark cowboy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he was like the first like lame cowboy LARPer. Uh, he was born to
1: kill. Yeah, born to kill. For, he really for did. Rojava. He like yeah. went to Rojava like for no reason. He literally like, did
2: oh, go to Rojava play. for no reason. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Cool. Oh no. What if uh,
0: what if somebody were to become president?
1: <laughs> oh God, no, no. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Look, all I heard was screams bottle clinks. Holy sirens going up and down the streets. Spent years hoping we would hit the lottery. Had to get a motion, hoping wasn't getting us a thing. Now. I'm, out to be the next monopoly Anything I'm doing This shit they ain't gotta see Nosy ass people need To stay up off of me Billion dollar dreams Gotta come with Billion dollar schemes Ever since I had a tag With Muhammad I was whipping up A plan with the squadron Number one on the man If you watching I was taught that If you got it Then you got it Fuck the talking I'll be the shit Till they lower down my coffin Never burn a bridge If I still gotta cross it I'm probably drinking On a job But I'm bossing Late nights Early mornings Work a you'ma call it? Been had far since Back in the days, if you folks don't recall it They hit me with the gossip, I tell them begging pardon I'm aiming at praise, so don't become a target But let me switch the topic See lately I've been upset Coming from a city they say everyone gave up man. When they filled up the roster, we were what slept. Bet them same hoes shot a holler cause we up next Fuck that, bitch Bitch, I'm from the 90s, I need all that Looking for a job, better call back. If anybody wondering where the boss at, tell them I'll be gone for a minute because I'm on track. Bitch, I'm from the 90s, I need all that. Looking for a job, better call back. If anybody wondering where the boss at, tell them I'll be gone for a minute because I'm on track. Welcome players and playettes. Thank you for choosing damn track. as your mode of transportation. Our scheduled time for departure is 1147, which means we're not a minute early and not a second late. If everyone could pull out your golden ticket, we'll be to collect we have complimentary cognac in the back and beautiful women for your laughs come see what we got in store tell me what you waiting for they're about to close the doors but before you get on board just know on track, I spark instantly. Darth's killer beat. My heart is my artillery. Darth Melody, art embassy, auxiliary. I'm spaced out. You can't see me. I'm dark energy. Oh, Who came from that get right? i A midnight terror, but still keep it lit like Tesla in the AC. Cooling with the motivated Navy. Always hold my shit down, because I'm an anchor, baby. Running shit in this town, we do that on a daily. Tell them a freestyle, somebody better pay me. But I'll play my part till I shut down, because we came too far to close. Shop and give up now, that's real. If I could get everyone's attention for a hot second We're gonna make a quick pit stop in nowhere, Nevada Next stop is Swahili (laughs) We got a lot of young legends in the place to be Just a heads up, if your lady comes up missing You probably won't find her in the lost and found Now, sit tight and enjoy the rest of your trip Bitch, I'm from the 90s, I need all that Looking for a job, better call back If anybody wondering where the boss at Tell him I be gone for a minute Cause I'm on track Bitch, I'm from the 90s, I need all that Looking for a job, better call back If anybody wondering where the boss at Tell him I be gone for a minute Cause I'm on track On track On track, on track. Go see what we got in store. Tell me what you' waiting for. They're about to close the doors, but before you get on board, just know.